Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. Sometimes change can be good. Sometimes, as you know, you gotta change your socks. You gotta change. You gotta change your shirt. Change can be good. Like it can be. Uh, you know, look at myself. You know, I, I'm writing at JohnCanzano.com now. I found new joy. Every day I wake up, post. Like changes, can, disruption can be good. I'm going to say that in front of what I'm going to say next because what I'm going to say next is is making some people in the state of Oregon anxious. University of Oregon President Michael Schill is leaving Eugene. He's going to the Big Ten. I found out early, early, early this morning that Schill was on the move. I spent a couple hours trying to confirm it. Finally did. Michael Schill headed to North- Northwestern. They announced it mid-morning this morning. It's bad timing if you are... An Oregon Duck fan. The uncertainty is not going to be fun for a lot of fans because people are going to go, well, what does it mean? Uh, do the, do, does Oregon have a voice in the room when it comes to potential conference realignment, all of that stuff? You know, is this good for Oregon? Michael Schill being part of the presidents and chancellors in, in the Big Ten, does this mean that he'll invite Oregon in with open arms? Like, I'm not so sure I'm going to go there. But I'm going to tell you, this is a good move for Michael Schill. He gets to Northwestern. I hope he brings a jacket to Chicago. He has uh, worked at the University of Chicago Law School previously. He is a, uh, a guy that I got to know a little bit in his role as president at Oregon, and I thought he did a nice job at Oregon. He, uh, he's a guy that was born in upstate New York. His dad was a factory worker. We had him on the show here, uh, Michael Schill, we did. and uh, His mother was a nurse. And he ended up uh, going to Princeton and then Yale Law School, and then he practiced law, and then he got into teaching, and then he was at uh, the University of Chicago, and then he was at UCLA, and then, of course, the University of Oregon brought him in. He wasn't a diehard sports guy, and that chapped some people. And at, at surface level, if you're not willing to do any of the reporting, if you're not willing to talk to the guy, if you're not willing to kind of figure out who he is and what he's about, yeah, you're going to go, oh, he wasn't a sports guy. Um, Michael Schill wasn't a sports guy. But I saw him when the University of Oregon football team had senior day down on the field shaking the hands of all the players. And I saw him when the Oregon Ducks women's basketball team was uh, having their senior night at at a lot of games. And he was sitting at games, courtside, uh, he became a fan of sports, even though it wasn't inherent and natural to him. And I respected that. And I talked to him a lot in the past couple of few years in particular. We had him on the show a couple of times, and I respect the guy. And I think he was really smart, and I think he cared about students at Oregon. So this is not a great development that Oregon loses Michael Schill. But I also think, like, in the course of any university – you're going to have different leadership voices, and sometimes a change of voice is healthy for the institution. And uh, we have seen universities uh, make good hires and make bad hires. 
We have seen universities cycle through presidents that were pro-sports and not pro-sports. So I'll be curious to see what the University of Oregon and the trustees at Oregon do with this vacancy. But Michael Schill is on the move at a time in which Oregon needs a voice in the room, at a time in which the Pac-12 conference desperately needs stability. So, you know, there's this is a tumultuous development, having the university president leave. And I'm going to say this, like, look, Oregon State is in a similar predicament. Oregon State has an interim president that is doing a nice job, uh, you know, trying to do what she can do to keep, you know, things running business as usual. Uh, I'm talking now about Becky Johnson, who has served, I think, admirably in the wake of F. King Alexander's F. King disastrous tenure at uh, Oregon State. But Becky Johnson's been there as the interim president, and uh, Jayathi Murthy will be coming in as the new president on September 9th. And I have wondered, like, as the Pac-12 CEO group meets, and these are the chancellors and presidents who are, uh, you know, part of the uh, Pac-12 conference. They are essentially the bosses of George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner. But as they meet, I have wondered, does Oregon State have a real seat at the table because they have an interim president there? Because I've talked in the past with different interim presidents. Washington State had one for a while as well. And I, you know, I, I sort of tried to gather, does an interim president have the clout, have the juice in the room that a sitting president has? And as it turns out, no. In most cases, an interim president is drowning in all of the other issues that university presidents face on their campuses. Billion-dollar budgets, uh, you know, teaching tenure, uh, faculty senate, uh, student groups, student fees, budget cuts. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in their world. And so often when these interim presidents are sitting in on the Pac-12 CEO group meetings, they're, they're holding a binder, which is their instructional manual on protocol and how things go. But, you know, nowhere in there are they super motivated to advocate or disrupt because they're not going to be there long term. And and more often than not, they will defer to the other presidents and chancellors and go, okay, what is the group doing? I'll go along with the group. So I felt like Oregon State in this time, as it's waiting for uh, you know, Jayathi Murthy, the new president, to start her tenure on September 9th, I wondered if Oregon State really is at a, is at a disadvantage. And now I am wondering about the University of Oregon being at a possible disadvantage as this moves forward. But... I, you know, I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. Uh, if you uh, subscribe to me, you got the news before anybody else got it, and that's part of the uh, one of the advantages of being a subscriber. It gets delivered direct to your email inbox in real time. Uh, I had this column written, I'm going to tell you, probably an hour or two before I even sent it because I was just desperately trying to get confirmation from a second source. I know a lot of people just would have put it out there, like, you know, is he leaving with a question mark? It's just not my style. I wanted to know, uh, in fact, if if uh, Michael Schill was on the move or not, and it turns out Michael Schill is on the move. He's going to Northwestern. It is a big-time job in the academic world, of course, at Northwestern. Um, you know, Northwestern has made a bigger commitment to athletics in the last uh, couple of few years. They've built new facilities. They're also going to get that $70 million a year plus in revenue from the Big Ten Conference. But make no mistake, this is a good career move for Michael Schill. I'm happy for the guy in that respect. I'm a little worried about what's going to happen to the Pac-12, what's going to happen to Oregon. This certainly doesn't help when it comes to stability of the conference. Still, Oregon's got a unique position in the Pac-12. 
with UCLA and USC apparently on the way, defecting to the Big Ten Conference, uh, there, you, you could argue that Oregon is the most powerful entity left in the Pac-12. It's either Oregon or Washington or Oregon and Stanford, and it's a small group of universities that, that I think are tent poles within this conference. They're all important. Make no mistake. Colorado's important. Arizona's important. Don't at me if you're an Arizona State fan. But Oregon holds a unique spot in the Pac-12 right now. And, and I had an AD tell me early on, if Oregon and Washington stay, this conference stays together. I mean, they're the glue of this conference. Essentially, that AD, who is not somebody working in the state, uh, tells me that if Oregon and Washington are on board, everybody else will follow. So now the question begs, what will Oregon do? What is Oregon's plan? How will the new university president fit into that? And what does this do to the structure of the Pac-12 conference as they're trying to navigate, I think, choppy waters with no proof of buoyancy. Uh, George Klyovkov's out there trying to negotiate a media rights deal. ESPN feels like the likely bidder. Maybe Amazon, maybe Apple. Somebody coming in as a streamer probably makes sense. But beyond that, I think it's really going to be an important time for the University of Oregon to get its stuff together, figure out what it wants to be, where does it want to play in college sports, uh, is it okay being in the Pac-12 conference and and potentially dominating the Pac-12 conference and then, you know, making the playoff and in, in, in can it garner enough revenue in there to, con- to sort of perpetuate that model? And that's the question, right? Because the Big Ten members are going to be funded at a level that is historic. They could be looking at 70 to $100 million a year in media rights distributions. They could be looking at additional revenue that is going to fall in their lap when the playoff expands to 12 teams or 16 teams. And Oregon's got to figure out, and I'm talking Oregon specifically because Oregon is one of the haves inside this conference, one of the 10 remaining schools. It's either number one or number 1B when you look at sort of the hierarchy of this conference. But can Oregon continue to compete at a national level? Can it continue to knock on the door or sniff around the playoff? Can it break through when the playoff is expanded beyond this ridiculous four-team invitational nonsense that is out there now? And if Oregon, if the answer to that is yes, I would argue that Oregon's path in college football is similar to the path that Notre Dame wants to take. Notre Dame wants to stay independent. The alumni love being independent. The university loves being independent. I covered that university as a beat reporter in the late 1990s. They relish that they're different from everybody else. Gonzaga does the same thing in basketball. They relish the fact that they're different than everybody else. They don't come from one of the most prestigious, powerful, uh, you know, revenue-supported conferences in America. No, no, no. They're just a sleeping giant in Spokane that woke up one day and said, you know what, we can win this conference most years, maybe every year. We can put teams in the Sweet 16, Elite 8, maybe the Final Four, maybe even the title game, and that can be our identity. What will the identity of Oregon be beyond this cycle? I, c- I would present to you at Exhibit A that if Oregon can get to the playoff or prove that it can get to an expanded playoff, that it might be better off competing in a Pac-12 conference where it doesn't have to play Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, Wisconsin, Penn State, week in and week out. Much like Notre Dame, I think if the revenue is there and the path to the playoff is there, Oregon should just sit tight and do and be Oregon and be great and be innovative and you know sell that Oregon brand nationally. Because I think if 
a new university president comes on the scene and says, no, 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 we need to chase UCLA and USC into the Big Ten, or if the landscape of college athletics changes so much so that the Pac-12 just doesn't look like it can present a clearer path to the playoff for the conference champion every year, then Oregon's got to make some tough decisions, a tough decision. Should I stay or should I go is the question. We'll kick that around on today's show. Up next, though, we're going to the Big Sky Conference. Tom Wistershill is the commissioner of the Big Sky. Where does the Big Sky fit in the hierarchy of college football? What about payday games? Are the Big Sky members nervous? We'll talk to the conference commissioner coming up. Maybe he can lend some insight on what he thinks is going to happen in major college football. I want you to leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. A lot of movement in college football. We all know that. Made a bunch of people anxious. But what's going on in the Big Sky Conference? And what is the trickle-down effect of all of the uh, movement we see with expansion? Uh, When you look at the football championship subdivision that Portland State and others in the Big Sky Conference participate in, what will be the net effect of all of this? Here to talk about it, Tom Wisterstill. He is the commissioner of the Big Sky Conference, and he's joining us. What was your reaction when you, you saw USC-UCLA to the Big Ten, Tom? I was shocked, um, as I assume most people in the country were, uh, especially all of us out west here. Um, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I guess I was surprised by Texas and Oklahoma, um, but I was more surprised with USC and UCLA. And so it definitely kind of sends shockwaves around college athletics and around all of us that uh, make a living doing this, and especially our commissioner's group of 32 conferences. Um, you know, you always know that there's going to be some trickle-down effect to that and what that's going to be. Nobody knows, but um, I, I think shocked is the best uh, adjective I have for you there. One of the first things I thought about was, you know, okay, does this make those payday games that the the major college programs play against the FCS schools, does this make them, those payday games, more important, less important? I couldn't quite figure that out. What's the sentiment right now as far as that trickle down? I think we feel pretty good about where we're at. You know, it's one of those things, as far as the guarantee games go, you know, the math just doesn't add up for all of those you know, Power Five conferences, you know, each of those schools need seven home games, maybe eight to make their budgets work and and to sell their suites at the numbers they need them. So, you know, the numbers just don't work for them all to play each other every game. So uh, we feel pretty good about where we're at. Sometimes our geography is a hindrance because it's expensive, you know, because we have to fly all over the West Coast for all our games. But this is one of those instances where our geography helps us. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're an easy drive for schools like Portland State to play uh, play a Power 5 program. Same thing for Eastern Washington and Northern Arizona and all our programs. So, um, so right now I think we feel pretty good about where we're at from that perspective. It's uh, interesting to kind of see, like, you know, the health of college football. How do you feel right now about the Big Sky and the FCS level in particular health-wise? I think we're in a really good sweet spot. Um, you know, I think – you know, what happened when Texas and Oklahoma left, you know, was this shakeup that everybody did, was kind of like, okay, is that it? And then it settled down for a while. Um, and then the timing of the 
of the USC-UCLA uh, move was interesting because literally it happened the week after we were all actually here in Utah in Park City, all 32 of us having meetings and, and uh, a lot of good camaraderie and good time had by all. And then the move happens with USC and UCLA, and then that kind of shakes the cornerstone of, okay, what's going to happen? Um, but to me, that provided some clarity. To me, there's, to me, it's clear that the Big Ten and the SEC want to create their own group, um, be it 40 schools, whatever, and have this super type, uh, type league, NFL light, if you want to call it. And, uh, you know, what that means then for us at the, at the mid-major level is, you know, the nice thing is we've got, you know, 125, 130 schools that all look very similar, um, similar in scholarships, similar in budget, similar in what I like to call the balance between, you know, uh, money and education. And I, I like where we're at. I think that's a real sweet spot for us. Um, in between those two, it's it's a real mess right now, unfortunately. And, the, you know, you have uncertainty within the Pac-12 and the Big 12. You know, the ACC is pretty stable, but I'm not sure they really want to be uh, with their long-term uh, contracts. So, you know, you just have a lot of uncertainty out there in that middle group that I think makes it really hard uh, right now. But nonetheless, I feel good about where we're at. There's going to be a place for the big sky. There's too many schools like us. Uh, there's too many um, too many schools that focus in on, you know, that, that like I said, that balance between athletics and academics of saying – you know, yeah, we want to make money, but we're not chasing the almighty dollar. It's about a great um, marketing tool for our universities to have intercollegiate athletics provide really competitive athletics for a broad and diverse group of student-athletes, and that's what our schools are about in the Big Sky Conference. Tom Wistersill, Big Sky Conference Commissioner, is our guest. You hit on it right there because I think we are at a fork in the road for college athletics, and it feels like the – major conferences want to turn semi-professional and i wonder if in some weird way this positions your level of football your your conference in particular as a true college experience if there still is one that certainly is a goal of ours we want to be that we want to be that group and you know it's hard i mean i you know i worked at two power five institutions at wisconsin and minnesota and it's it's hard to continually bang the drum about education when you're paying your football coach $10 million. And, uh, and so that's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to justify to whether it be your constituents or whether it be Congress uh, or the court of public opinion. And so that's what I feel good about what our schools do. You know, our 10 full-time members are, are very much alike in public institutions that focus in on graduation and providing a great educational experience for the the regular student as well as the student athletes. And then, oh, by the way, we can have incredible uh, athletics and compete for national champions, championships in some of our sports uh, and be able to still compete with the big boys on occasion on the football field too. So um, I like that sweet spot that we're in. Tom, let me ask you, you know, I, I, I wondered what the Pac-12 could have done to stop USC, UCLA, and all I can come to is, you know, there, there maybe there was some proactive things that they should have been doing in the last year. Did this cause you at all and your staff to start going, hey, we need to make house calls on all our members, make sure everybody's happy? I'm, I'm guessing that probably went on around the country. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, I mean, you know, to me the only thing the Pac-12, you know, the, the only thing that I've said this, 
The only thing the Pac-12 I think could have done, and I'm not sure it would have mattered in the end, but I think getting to that 12-team playoff might have helped some. Um, securing an automatic bid for the for the conference champions, those five champions. I think that's the only thing differently maybe I would have done or would have suggested the Pac-12 do had I been in those shoes. But, you know, for us, you know, it's about, you know, we do communicate frequently with our presidents and ADs and talk about what's going on. You know, the bottom line is, is if, if one of our schools gets a call and there's a tremendous amount of money at the end and they choose to go to FBS, there's nothing we can do about it. So I'm not going to lose sleep over stuff like that. But, but I do believe that because, like I said, you know, so many of our schools look so much alike in how we operate and what we do and how we pay our coaches and how we travel and how we recruit. Um, it, 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 it takes a, it's a really big jump. I was at group of five AD for, for six years in, in the Mac, you know, very similar to the Mountain West. And, and it's, a, it's an awful big jump for those schools to be able to try to afford what they're doing. And so all of a sudden you're paying those salaries and paying those scholarships. And, and uh, while there's some really good things about it, there's also a downside as well. So, you know, we'll continue to work really hard to provide the best opportunity for our, for our members and hope that that hope that we're stable a year from now, we're still in that same boat, but uh, time will tell. And like I said, John, there's only, so much we can do about some of those decisions. I love talking about the Big Sky, covering it, and I know a lot of our listeners across the state and people listening on the podcast after it gets posted are, you know, they they all have dogs in this fight at Sacramento State and Eastern Washington and and other places. Um, there's a lot of TV money out there. We're seeing it, and I'm wondering. Is there a way for the Big Sky Conference? Will that trickle down? Will you will you see media rights? money find its way to you guys eventually because there's just flat out need for content yeah i think what you're seeing is that um you know we we have a, we have a good media rights deal right now with with espn plus you know and we're able to you know continue to have you know great um great content i'm sorry there we're able to have great great content on espn plus and also with um uh, with our new scripts deal that will provide linear coverage to, to our programs. But nonetheless, the big dollars out there, I think what, what I'm happy to see is, you know, just the increased rights fees across the country, um, I think will will trickle down. Now, will that mean hundreds of millions of dollars for us? Not yet. But live sports is the greatest thing for linear TV. If you, the, the number I saw was of the top 100 programs last year, 95 of them were live sports. So, you know, so the thirst is out there, and we'll continue to grow. We'll continue to provide a great option for fans. And then hopefully in a couple of years we'll start our renegotiations with ESPN here a little over a year from now. Um, then we can start to see some real growth. You know, but it's all about competition, John, and that's, that's what we need to have. We need more players in the marketplace. We need, you know, not just Fox and ESPN. You know, we need – Peacock, and we need Paramount, and we need some of these other streaming services to put some money into college sports as well, so it creates more competition, and I think that will that will end up in a really good place for us. Yeah, there's been some talk about ESPN+. Plus. They raised their subscriber fees. They're obviously uh, in need of content. There's been some talk about the Pac-12 ending up on ESPN+. Plus. Give us an idea of what that experience has been like for the Big Sky. For us, it's been really positive. I mean, what we found is our schools stepped up. Our presidents put additional money towards production. 
uh, and personnel. And so it was just in year one of our deal, we saw a, a, a great increase in the quality of the productions. You know, and I think what people want is just a place they know they can go see the game. And not, we're not, we, and, and this way you can't just look at it saying football, men's basketball. You got to think about, you know, track and field and tennis and softball and baseball and all the other sports that all the conferences have out west here of, you know, if you know that it's going to be there, then it's easy to go find it. And so if I'm a, you know, if I'm a softball parent of an Oregon softball player that lives in Phoenix, I just want to know every game is going to be somewhere I can watch it. And so then that justifies the cost, whether it be 8 bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 15 bucks a month. Then, all, then obviously the more subscribers that come in, the higher those rights fee are going to go. So I think that's just the way it is now. And for us, the quality level is really no different, whether we're on ESPNU or we're on ESPN Plus or ESPN2 or, or Fox Sports 1. The quality is so similar now that people aren't going to notice the difference. That, that didn't used to be the case, uh, but now I think that's the way the world is going to go. Um, and I'm really excited about that because then it's kind of one-stop shopping for fans. It's worked out really good for us, and I think the Power Five uh, conferences will certainly uh, trend in that direction with some of those sports because it just makes sense both financially because that's where – uh, you know, companies like ESPN and others want to drive their viewers. And then secondly, from a production standpoint, easy to do. And, um, you know, it's set up in a way that's easy to consume for our for our constituents. Before I cut you loose, again, we're talking to Tom Wistersill, the Big Sky Conference Commissioner. Um, the USC-UCLA equation, it, it, it feels that it's going to be cumbersome at best for the non-football athletes that have to play Big Ten schedules. In your world, that has to be – People have to be talking about that. Oh, yeah, no doubt. You know, I think that's one of those things where, you know, again, I, you know, I certainly was a part of the discussions between those two schools and the Big Ten. But, you know, obviously the discussion starts around the money that can flow through the system and the increase that will come from the partners. It sounds like the Big Ten's going to announce their, you know, their media rights deal here in the next couple of weeks is kind of the rumor. And so that's when we'll really get to see what the value is there. But, um, but I certainly, you know, don't think or a lot of people thinking about, hey, what's going to happen when a softball series between UCLA plays Rutgers and Maryland? And how do you do that? You know, do they fly in on Tuesday and then fly back on Sunday? And, you know, and so then the next week they have a home game, but then the next week they're doing Michigan and Michigan State. And pretty soon the travel costs and the time away from campus. And I certainly think that's gotten lost in that discussion. And it's a real shame because, again, they're supposed to be student-athletes. But nonetheless, um, that's the decisions they made as they trend towards that more professional model. And uh, and like I said, we feel really good about where we're at in the big sky and, and the balance we've been able to strike. How do you feel about early season football games? Which games are you looking forward to seeing? I'll tell you what. I'm, I, I've never been to a game at Oregon before. And uh, Eastern Washington plays there in uh, week two, I believe. So I I can't wait to be there in Eugene and uh, looking forward to that. Rob uh, Mullins is a good friend of mine. Looking forward to seeing him. Um, You know, I'm going to be down Arizona State, host uh, Northern Arizona. And last year, Northern Arizona beat Arizona. Um, I know Arizona State's a little better. So looking forward to that that game. And then uh, I've also never seen a game at Wazoo. And Idaho's playing at Washington State that first Saturday. So um, I got my first couple of weeks are uh, 
I'm chocolate chip uh, taking off a few of the Pac-12 schools I haven't seen yet. Looking forward to those. But, um, you know, our schools, you know, that balance between, you know, finding some home games, getting some money games, and then trying to win a national championship. And that's what our conference goal is. And I think we've got five or six teams that could do it this year. So it should be a really, really exciting season for Big Sky football. Now, my researchers tell me that you have been making your way around your conference challenging Big Sky athletes in their respective sports. Are you out of your mind, Tom? Like, what are you doing? You playing basketball and track and field and volleyball? What's going on? Yeah, I've tried a few things. This little competing with the commission. It's just kind of a fun video series we've done. Um, I still have a number of sports to uh, to get off the list. But, uh, yeah, I can tell you this. I played college basketball at a Division three school in Minnesota. So at least I can shoot a little bit. So I did hold my own in horse against the men's team at Montana. <laughs> but the rest of the sports were awful. I was I couldn't have been worse. And I'll tell you what, volley, trying to hit a volleyball, a return of a volleyball serve, they send those knuckleballs at you. <laughs> that might be the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in sports. So um, I, I have complete respect and admiration for all of them. But it's a fun way to, to get to know the student-athletes, let them know that, uh, you know, I don't take myself too seriously. They are sports. They're supposed to be fun, and uh, it's a great way to get to know them. Tom Wistersill, Big Sky Commissioner, thank you for your time. Wish you the best. I'll see you when you, uh, Thanks, you visit John. Oregon. Appreciate it. Take care. All right, there it is, the, the view from the Big Sky. I think it's important because we all think about the Pac-12, we think about the Big Ten, the SEC. There is a trickle down here. And, and in some weird twist, I, I almost think that those guarantee games or the payday games that are so vital to you know, the Portland states and the eastern Washington, Sacramento states, I almost feel that they become even more important because, you know, I, I would expect to see that some of these conferences are not going to want to play crossover non-conference games. I don't see the Pac-12 right now lining up to go schedule games against the Big Ten for, you know, based on what happened with USC and UCLA going. I Maybe I'll be wrong in the end, but... I wonder if the market for these guarantee games will start to inflate a little bit for that reason. I want you to leave it here. So much more ahead. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Good stuff with Tom Wistersill, the Big Sky Conference Commissioner. Chase Coda, University of Oregon football player on tomorrow's show. Also, uh, Marcus Lattimore, former NFL player, former 49er, will be joining us tomorrow as well. Uh, I, uh, I started a podcast with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, and we, we got this idea weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks ago. But only after USC and UCLA decided that they were defecting to the Big Ten Conference, we kind of said, hey, we better, you know, we better get on this. Uh, let's do this. Um, and so we launched the Konzano and Wilner podcast. You can get it on Apple Podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get a podcast. You can find Konzano and Wilner. That's how you find it. Just search for us. Um, but I'm going to play a, li a little clip from our from our podcast episode that posts today, um, and, and I think it'll spark a bigger discussion. We were talking about 
Well, I, I framed the question to Wilner. I want to know about the non-conference games and how important is it for the Pac-12 now with USC moving uh, to win some non-conference games. And, oh, by the way, how important is everybody not named USC or UCLA to that equation? Here is uh, a snippet of that conversation, a little tease for you, if you will, of John Wilner and I, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, frequent guest of this show, talking about what this all means for the Pac-12 conference and really what the non-conference games in particular mean for this conference. How important is it for the Pac-12 to get some wins and strong showings in those non-conference games with all of this turmoil going on? It's funny how that has shifted, right? Prior to June 30th, I would have argued that USC was the most important team for the conference this season and having a good year under Lincoln Riley because the Pac-12 was going to renegotiate its media rights after the season. And if SC had shown promise, that could, uh, you know, increase the valuation for the whole conference. Now SC's out of that picture on future valuation. And so you wonder, you know, Oregon and Utah are key players in that at this point. And the timing may work, right? I think this negotiations for the Pac-12 is going to, take up you know a couple months potentially if if Oregon and Utah start off well uh, win those those big early games you know that can't hurt the conference in terms of going when they go to the market to to sell their football product right it, and then you get the whole level of what it does immediately for playoff hunt and for you know the Pac-12's reputation this season alone so to me those two schools especially uh, th- there's layered importance to how they do this season. Yeah, and and I, you know, I keep thinking like, of course, there's a lot of hype around USC and Lincoln Riley, and everybody's curious to see how he does. But you're right, like, you know, you talk about what are the most important games. It's Oregon, Georgia on September 3rd. It's Utah, Florida that same weekend in Gainesville, and then you probably look at you know Oregon playing BYU in week three, Arizona State uh, at Oklahoma State in week two. Uh, you go to like Washington State and Wisconsin that same week, that second week, and week three it's Washington, Michigan State. Like I'm still looking for a USC game, and I'm already reeling off five or six games that are vital to this conference. And I don't think Oregon can beat Georgia, right? I don't think I don't see that happening. I I called Oregon over Ohio State last year. I don't see it in this one, but I think Oregon can play them uh, respectably. I think the biggest opportunity for this conference is Utah going to Gainesville and punching Florida in the nose. I think that would be a statement early on that this conference is not left behind. And, you know, if Utah somehow goes in there and loses or gets embarrassed, I think it is a it would be a bad loss for the conference because I think that's a middle-road SEC team against the team we all believe is going to be the conference champion. Yep, and just – just from a numbers standpoint, right? No two-loss team has ever gotten in the playoff. No team in the Pac-12 era has ever gone undefeated in conference play. So that tells you that if if somebody, Utah, Oregon, whoever, they got to finish 13 and 0 or 12 and 1 to get in the playoff, and they're probably not going to win all their league games. So Utah, if they lose at Florida, then you know, they got to do what nobody's done, which is run the table in conference play in order to get in the playoff. And that, that seems like a pretty tall order. So it's kind of the same thing as you, as Oregon last year, you got to win that big opener and then you got to play well. And, and, you know, 
Oregon couldn't get it done at Stanford. That was the big game that derailed them. Utah, if they can win in the swamp and, and you know just lose once somewhere, then they're going to be in the playoff. That's uh, an excerpt from the Kanzano and Wilner podcast. You can grab it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you go. But the, you know, we went into a much longer discussion about why that's important. Part of it is media rights. Part of it is the Pac-12 will be negotiating their deal with ESPN, Amazon, Apple, whoever is at the table as the early season games are happening. Second part of it is just the perception of the Pac-12 prior to expansion of this playoff it would be it, it would be a massive accomplishment to get another team in the playoff the pac 12s only had two teams ever participate in the playoff we know they're oregon and washington it's been nobody else and i think somebody besides oregon and washington contending and getting to the playoff and meriting a payday and showing that the pac 12 can matter on the national landscape hey, hey utah doesn't need to go to the big 10 to get into the playoff they can get into the playoff playing in salt lake city playing in the pac 12 conference it's it's just a massive development and it these early season games Last year, it was a historically bad non-conference for the Pac-12. It was a historically bad bowl season for the Pac-12. They did not perform in non-conference games. And part of, the, of what is happening here is that the programs inside the conference are not funded in the way that other conferences are. It is catching up to the Pac-12. I wrote about it and started writing about it in 2016, 2017, 2018. I said, the bill's come and due. They are $10 million behind a year. They are $20 million behind a year. It was Larry Scott's fault. But ultimately, they have to start winning some of these games or the narrative nationally, it's not just about money. It's about your football sucks. And so I think it is important for Utah in particular and Washington hosting Michigan State and Washington State going to Wisconsin and Arizona State has got a game with San Diego State and I, and Oregon obviously playing Georgia. I'm not expecting Oregon to win that game, but I think it's massively important that they compete in these games and show that they belong in major college football. Our big splash is coming up. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. How you guys doing? What's going on, Steven, Sean? How you guys? Doing well, John. How are you doing today? It's a nice, lovely day out. It is a lovely day outside. It, uh, it's all sunny and nice. I like a good sunny day. I'm hearing people bellyache, and they're saying they're ready for the cold weather to come back. I think Sean said the other day he's ready for a sweatshirt. Oh, no, right. no, Sean. No. Come Ye- on, man. Yesterday was awesome. Like, the cloudy weather yesterday, that was my perfect weather. I think yesterday was probably in the 60s and cloudy because there was that big storm a couple nights ago. It didn't really hit Portland, but Salem, Eugene, Ben, there was lightning and thunder. Anyways, I love How- the cloudy weather. Why do you love the cloudy weather? You're, you're like you're young. You're supposed to be outside. You're having you know, pool parties at the apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just I hate this like sweating and uh, just feeling feeling too hot. Honestly, I just it's perfect when it's just like a little bit cloudy and you know moderate. That's for me. Cloudy and moderate. Fall. Fall weather. Uh-uh. The falls like, are so short in Oregon, though. I, even the fall, I like the clear skies, blue skies. I need that vitamin D. I need that, you know, I don't need that seasonal affective disorder. You know, I need the, I need a little sunshine, man. Yeah, there's a. it's always great when it's wintertime and it's cold and crisp out, but it's bright and sunny. 
right? Nice. Like that's like that's perfect. I need the sun. I'm with you, John. I want the hot. And I want the sun. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all agree that we're not looking forward to uh, when daylight savings hits this winter and it's dark at six o'clock and it's no. pitch. You know, it's uh, it's very cold and rainy every day. Like I'm not looking forward to that, but I I am a little bit sick of the heat. I am ready to do my big splash, and Bonzi Wells isn't gonna like it. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. But we the big splash. Well, the NBA has decided it is going to retire the number six league-wide. Bonzi, did anybody clear this with Bonzi Wells? I had a friend of mine who reached this morning. Bill Russell, his number six jersey will be retired permanently throughout the NBA. Adam Silver called him basketball's Babe Ruth. He will now share a timeless honor with Jackie Robinson, the NBA permanently retiring number six across the league in recognition of his Hall of Fame career in pioneering social justice activism. 11-time NBA champion, died last month at the age of 88. Uh, it is a, uh, uh, a cool honor. And one designed to give homage across the league. First NBA player to receive this honor ever. Lakers legend Magic Johnson said uh, this is uh, a unique and historic way. And it is a way to ensure that Bill's transcendent career will always be recognized. Uh, Number six, off the table now when you talk about numbers. Trailblazers, no, every other team in the NBA, nobody will wear the number six. How you feeling about that, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably the right choice. Uh, you know, Bill Russell was a little before my time, but, you know, you do, do any type of research, and he was so important to the game of basketball and so important to just the world in general, right? He was the first uh, black coach in the NBA. Just the activism he had, uh, you know, you, I've been playing on my update, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, talking about all the things that he did, yeah. so, like, I mean, I think if anybody deserves it, it's probably Bill Russell, right? Because also he played in Boston where he wasn't accepted, right? He was maybe the, he's probably the best, you know, he's the best winner of all time in the NBA and he was not accepted just because of his skin color in Boston. So I think with all that he had to go through, all he does, all he did, like, I think it's probably the right choice. And it's a no brainer, I think, for the NBA to do this. Bonzi Wells wore number six. Can you name other Blazer players in history without looking it up? Who wore the number six? Well, I do know Keon Johnson. Yeah, Keon Johnson. Yeah. Currently. Currently, um, he's out. Keon Johnson's number's been retired. They, yeah, he should just give it, get rid of it. Um, can you name it one other Blazer player who wore six without looking it up? Uh, Bonzi Wells, Keon Johnson. There my. are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight others who have I, worn the number six. I should be better at this, but I, I can't think of it off the top I of my head. I saw a tweet about this earlier, and I'm All forgetting right. the names. I'm going to start with Michael Holton, hmm. who uh, wore the number in 87-88. Walter Davis wore it in 1991. Joe Wolf, Mitchell Butler, Bonzi hmm. Wells, as I mentioned. Jawan Howard. How could you guys ah, forget Jawan Howard? Well, he he played for a million different teams. I, I kind of forgot he played for the Blazers. He was important that year, though. There's some injuries, and he had to get was, thrust into the lineup. Yeah, he was uh, he was a fun guy to have around the locker room and a good interview. Eric Maynard, uh, Shabazz Napier. That uh, one I should have gotten. Nick Stauskas. I should have got Maynard. I love I Eric Maynard. I have a hard time with Nick's last name. Stauskas. Stauskas? Well, he was Stauskas. on the Blazers for two seconds. Yeah. But he had but that I, one game against the Lakers where he scored 20. <laughs> 
<laughs> we fell in love. Jalen Horde. Mm. Thunder, Thunder Legend. <laughs> Keon Johnson is your last one. Uh, best, if I named a number, do you think you could name one player that suited up in that number for the Blazers? Uh, hopefully. Okay, I, let's, let's, start, let's start with double zero. Well, Duckworth. Okay. Zero. Um, Damian Lillard. Yeah. Yep. Well, he's, a, he's letter L, guys. Number one. Rod Strickland. Yep. Number two. Raymond Felton. <laughs> what are you doing? Raymond Felton did not wear number two. Did he not? No. Number nope. two. Come on. We've had, I've had one, two, three. Three of the players who wore number two have been on the show, in the history of the show. Oh, man. Well, now, now it should All be right. easy. Steve Blake oh. wore number two. Dan Dickow wore number two. And Wesley Matthews wore one, number two. So did Gary Trent oh, Jr. Wesley. Oh, man. I should have known Steve Blake. My wife loves Steve Blake. Number three. Well, CJ. Damon Stoudemire. Uh, number four. Greg Brown the third. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is, that, that's a good one. Uh, also, number four was worn by Jared Bayless, Nolan Smith, Maurice Harkless, Jim Paxson. Uh, let's Jared go to number, f- Bayless. Oh, yeah. number five. Raymond Felton. <laughs> yes, you finally got Felton. Fat Ray, he was staying down. I forget the, the apartment he was staying at, but he told everybody. Uh, Steve Blake also wore number five. Yeah, uh, I, was, I thought of him as a five, not we two. We talked about six. Let's go to number seven. B. Roy. B. Roy. Brandon Roy. Number eight. Come on. Martel Webster, oh, Patty yeah. Mills, Tabro Reza. Come on. I have a Martel Webster uh, jersey from back in the day. Number nine. Danny Ainge, Rick Brunson, Kelly Kel- Williams. Kelly was, what, like 11? Gary Trent Jr. wore nine as well. Nasir Little wore nine. Come And finally, guys, number 10. Uh, Danny Young. Number 10, no. Darnell Valentine wore number 10. Antonio Daniels. Joel Prisbilla wore uh, 10. Vanilla Gorilla. Dennis Smith Jr., Reggie Perry, Jake Lehman. There you have it. We went through the numbers. Now we'll play Punch It Audio, top of the hour. Anna will join us much more ahead. You got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. And the number game. Did you guys like the number game? Loved I, it. I do, but I I should be better at it. It's hard. It's hard when you're on live air. I used to be, like, fantastic at that kind of game. Like, when I was a kid, I would study the back of the baseball cards, the football cards. I could tell you the hometowns of players, the date of births of players. It was... It was kind of sick, really. It was ridiculous, but I'm more of a guy that can just name players off of random teams or like what college they played at, rather than their number. <laughs> why do Why do you think that is? Were you studying rosters or what were you doing? Yeah, I think so. I, I, in college, because I was a college basketball junkie, so like I always wanted to play in the NCAA tournament. So I know all these small school guys, and I just remember playing video games when I was little. So it's like I remember all these games, you know, guys back in the '90s and. Oh, random team, gotcha. I'm also guys, really good with the college thing. Are you guys both millennials? I know yeah. I am. I'm on the very yeah. very edge of a, of a okay. millennial. I'm Gen Z. You're Gen Z. 
I saw I saw a story in the New Yorker today, and I'm not just saying that so I could tell people I read the New Yorker. But I I saw this story. I saw it on Twitter, and then I clicked on it, and it was the New Yorker. But it was uh, it was a story about young people and how the Sean in particular and Stephen to some extent. You are the first generation that is uh, that grew up with social media, right? When did you when did you get a phone? When did you have social media? How old were you? My first cell phone I got as a junior in high school. Okay, that's, I, pretty, that's pretty funny. Dumb. I got mine in fifth grade, <laughs> but it was a flip. Okay, I was a grown up. I was employed and working a job before I got a phone, right? So, uh, you know, the internet wasn't really a thing. Like, my column used to just show up in a newspaper on somebody's doorstep, and then suddenly they were like, hey, do you want to put it online? And I was like, why would I do that? Everyone would read it before they it got to them in the newspaper. And, you know, so that's the generation I'm from. But the story essentially was, and tell me if you guys relate to this, that your generation – grew up with social media and grew up with phones and when people are hitting their mid to late 20s sean i don't know how old you are but you're approaching that i'm gonna guess uh they are taking a break from social media putting it on pause and in a way that the rest of us are not did you guys get an exhaustion with sort of being out there a phone social media because it was prevalent in your lives at such a young age uh, yes, for me, definitely, uh, especially during the pandemic. I was put on furlough at my other job, and I was just, like, checking Twitter. And I was like, this is boring, and, like, I'm getting just frustrated looking at everything. So I, I stopped looking at my phone. Um, I know my cousin, like, she was just so tired of social media, so she just got off of it altogether. Uh, and she hasn't posted for years, and my friends are the same way. So I think, I think yeah, I think especially people my age in the mid mid to late 30s, we, like, you know, we kind of think of the old days because we – because when we – we're younger, we didn't have phones, and then as we were in high school, that's when we started getting them. So I think, yeah, I think you're right on to something. I'm 23. Okay. Um, I, uh, For me, I could live probably without any social media besides Twitter. I feel like Twitter is too important for me. Like, that's how I get my news, to be honest, as sad as that is. Mm-hmm. Um, especially being in sports media, working in sports radio, like, I need Twitter to be able to know what's going on. And um, that's kind of where I interact with my friends. I, I enjoy sending my friends tweets. Like, I don't need to tweet. Like, I don't like tweeting that much um, unless it's something that I feel like is is funny or, you know, as long as it's not, like, controversial in any way. But I don't know if I could delete the Twitter app. I would I would have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so I, I could go yeah. through your old, Twitter, old, old tweets and there won't be any offensive ones? No, it's clean. It's oh, clean. Good. That's good. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, because I made this. I made a new Twitter. I made a new Twitter. Oh, he made a new reason. Twitter. So for that reason, sure. I was like, let's yeah. clear, let's. I, it was basically a cleanse. I made a new Twitter probably last year, and everything on there is clean. He's got the burner still. He's got the burner going just in case you know he wants to put out something offensive, but not <laughs> yeah. his not his real one. Uh, it's interesting because uh, I also kind of get my news on Twitter, but I I look at other things too. It, but just I know that I don't want to see just. The problem with getting your news only on Twitter or Facebook or so, some social media platform is that the algorithm of the platform kind of feeds you what it thinks you want. Or your followers on Twitter, you, you follow a narrow group of people, really relative to the world. So you're not getting, I think, a true sample of what is going on uh, nationally. And I, I actually rely on a lot of friends who will just text me 
interesting stories that they don't think I would see. I had a friend today who texted me this great story. Did you guys see this minor leaguer who, who hit the home run cycle? I did, yeah. It's a phenomenal that story. It's insane, yeah. It's never happened in the majors, only one other time in the minors. Yeah, Chandler Redmond is the kid's name, and he mashed his way into baseball lore. He, uh, you know, he's a Cardinals prospect. I think he was like a 34th round draft pick, whatever, but he hit a solo home run, a two-run home run, a three-run home run, and a grand slam in the same game. He drove in 11 runs. He had four jacks. He had five hits in the effort. Now, I can't imagine getting up to the plate in that last at-bat. He needed a three-run homer to complete the cycle. He gets to the plate, and he realizes there's two guys on base. And so I can't imagine the pressure, and I played college baseball. I can't imagine the pressure of having that in your head while you're going to the plate and going, if I hit a home run right now, I will hit the home run cycle. Only only the second player in history to do it, by the way. Another minor leaguer did it years ago. But he got up and he just said, I just, you know, if I get a chance to hit a hit a ball, I better mash it. And he did. He hit a three run jack. He hit for the home run cycle. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah. I mean I, you know, so I played small college basketball, but I never got the opportunity to have a four point play. Uh, when I actually played college, but in City League, I had a chance, and I remember I got fouled, I hit the three, and it was the first time I ever did that, and I was so nervous, even in City League, just to get that four-point play, because I was like, I always want to do this. Did you and get it? I did, yeah. Good. Surprisingly. Good I thought I was going to miss for sure. I wasn't the best free-throw shooter. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I could not imagine if I, just knowing I've already hit three home runs, I need this one for the home run cycle. Like how yeah. I, I would just be up there swinging as hard as they could, and it would be oh my god, it would be a strikeout or a ground out. I, I because, didn't know this existed. Yeah. The home run. I didn't cycle. either. I didn't. I didn't think it was a thing because it, it's unbelievable to to do that. But he hit the grand slam early in the game, so he got that out of the way. And by the way, his team scored twenty one runs in the game. They won twenty one to four. But when he got up in the eighth inning, he needed two runners on base and. There was a runner on third while he was on deck, and the batter in front of him walked to b- make it first and third. And I keep thinking, like, you know, if he comes up and, you know, there's only one aboard, it's the pressure's off, right? You've already, you've already hit the two-run jack, so you don't get it. But the fact that the guy walked, I'd be sitting there going to the plate going, don't think about hitting a home run, because anybody who's played baseball knows you don't go to the plate thinking hit a home run. No. You go to the plate thinking, what pitch am I looking for? Uh, I want to make good contact. Uh, what is this pitcher's best pitch? What is he going to throw me? Uh, what am I sitting on that first pitch? Am I looking for a fastball? Am I looking where? What, what location and what pitch am I looking for? He said he went to the plate. I want to read his quote. He, you know, he went to the plate. He realized that the pressure was on. He said, "Quote: Oh my gosh, I can do this. I was walking up for that last at bat. I saw two guys were on, and I was thinking everything is lined up. You can do this. Just stay calm and stay within yourself." But if you get a chance to get a ball to hammer, you better not miss it. That's what he was thinking. <laughs> that is unbelievable. That is awesome. Well, I love that. I mean, I, put, yeah. I was going to say, do you think, uh, let's just say hypothetically, this guy in third, like you said, that guy walked, but he hits the ball. If you're that guy in third and you know that Chandler Redmond's on deck and he needs a three <laughs> homer, are you running home or are you going to stay on third no matter what? I think you got to run home because your team would give you hell. Like yeah. the other guys on the, you'd be kangaroo court. Just right unwritten, yeah, unwritten rules. Yeah, the other team would benches would clear. Why are you not going home? You're showing us up. You they know, would, I don't. You they know. would beam. Re- they would beam Redmond next. Yeah. next to bat. I'm just, I'm just. It, I think it's remarkable. You know, when a guy has three home runs, the fact that they're throwing him pitches to hit in the game is another whole another animal. Uh, let's play some punch it audio. We got the best sound.
We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, don't look now, but the Baltimore Orioles have caught lightning in a bottle. Adley Rutschman, catcher for the Orioles, since he brought was brought up to the big leagues, the Orioles have been great, and they are surging. Mark DeRosa talked about Adley Rutschman. He compared him to Buster Posey. Punch it. Go back to the draft when he was the number one overall pick. You could have went with the college. Guarantee catcher. In Adley Rutschman, number two is Bobby Witt Jr., kind of that franchise-type player. Mike Elias ends up taking Adley Rutschman. He, what'd you say before we came out here? Yeah, he's got the it factor. He's got the it factor. Yeah. He really does. And there is a big comparison I could make with the 2010 Giants with Buster Posey after I saw him in spring training, and he went down to the minor leagues, and we all knew... He was one of the 25 best he guys. <laughs> he was one. And when he showed up and we put him in, in the lineup and Bruce Bochy to watch our team kind of ah, flourish, that's what Baltimore, they were 16 and 24. Baltimore Orioles were 16 and 24 when Rutschman came up. They are now 58 and 52. They won 7 of 10. They won 10 in a row at one point. And look out, they are hot and at Boston in the next two or three days. So they've got Toronto in front of them, two games back at Toronto. And then it's the Yankees in front of them. I'm not saying that Baltimore can catch the Yankees, but I would not want to play Baltimore in a series early in the playoffs. And John, Adley's been so good. So since the All-Star break, uh, he has a 529 on-base percentage. That's number one in Major League Baseball. They are now tied for the final wild card spot. And uh, look out. Look out. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, was talking about Chance Nolan. Here he is talking about his quarterback. Punch it. He's probably taken the most, yes. Uh, those other guys did work in with the one sum, like Ben got a series uh, in the movement period and things. So, you know, some of it is, you know, Chance He's going to get the first chance as we go along, but all three of those guys will get reps for the one. He's done some solid. Yeah, he's uh, he's been solid. I think he's confident. Um, I think he's throwing the ball really well. Uh, practices for decision-making and testing where I can stick a ball in and where not. He had a couple throws today. Probably would like back, but that's that's why we practice. Yeah, I think he's been accurate on the deep ball. On, on Again, you're not going to be 100% when you're throwing the ball 40, 50 yards, but he's given guys chances, um, especially the last, really yesterday, uh, so I think that's been interesting. Chance Nolan giving guys chances? Who would have thought it? Look, uh, he's talking about Chance Nolan, and that's great because if Chance Nolan can hurt teams with throwing the football, Oregon State will be fine on offense. They will run the ball. Jim Mahalchek, the offensive line coach, is great. The offensive line's got some experience. But if Chance Nolan can hurt people throwing the football, Oregon State's going to be dangerous on the offensive side. It was interesting, though. Last night I called Nick Daschle. Uh, who covers Oregon State like none other. And he started talking about the defense at Oregon State. And he's not the first person I've heard talk about the defense. Everybody who has seen this team practice 
is saying they are more physical, they are more dynamic, they are experienced in the secondary. They've got Omar Spates. Uh, look out for Oregon State. They could be a little dangerous. Michael Schill is the new president at Northwestern. It's a big loss for Oregon. If anybody's out there going, this is great for Oregon, you don't know what you're talking about. Michael Schill, Oregon president, moving to Northwestern. Here he is greeting Northwestern. Punch it. Hello, Northwestern University. My name is Michael Schill, and I am honored and humbled to have been selected as your next president. Northwestern has a long tradition of educating the brightest minds and pushing the boundaries of research and innovation. Now, I know how a college education can transform one's life. I was a first-generation college graduate myself. My dad worked in a clothing factory, and my mom was a registered nurse. From an early age, they instilled in me the importance of higher education. It became my life's passion. For the past seven years, I've served as president of the University of Oregon. I'm proud of our work building academic excellence and making the university a more inclusive place where all students, faculty, and staff can flourish. Next, I'm really looking forward to engaging with the entire Northwestern community to push out the frontiers of research, to enhance diversity, and to foster a sense of belonging and respect. I am so looking forward to a great next chapter in our university's history. Thank you. That's Michael Schill, the Oregon president on his way to Northwestern. Good career move from him. I, uh, I asked him why the move. He said, great academic university, closer to family. I told him to bring a jacket. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. I got tipped off this morning about 6.30 in the morning that Michael Schill was headed to Northwestern. And for people who, who know Michael Schill, you understand that this is a guy who's not a sports nut, but I think he was very supportive of the programs, bought in, and he was very close with Rob Mullins, the University of Oregon athletic director. They walked in lockstep. And I think it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see who Oregon hires. I don't like that Oregon doesn't have a sitting president uh, as part of the Pac-12 CEO group at such a important and pivotal time. But I understand why Michael Schill is leaving. If you are a Duck fan, uh, I think you got to hope that Oregon hires somebody who's got some athletic vision, maybe some experience at a university that has uh, that has had some athletic success. Uh, you need an advocate in that room. You need somebody who's going to be respected by the other presidents and chancellors and advocate for your university. It's big time. Todd Bowles in Tampa Bay announcing that Tom Brady is stepping away for personal reasons. What's going on with Tom in Tampa? Punch it. They didn't want to take away reps from Blaine and uh, Kyle and as well as Griff as far as going into these next two games and it's something he needs to handle. We trust him. We talked about it. It was like it was scheduled way before training camp, and he will not be here until after Tennessee. Yeah, if he didn't have the years and the experience that the guy has and comes in and works diligently, I would definitely be concerned. It's a personal issue, and that, that's, that's all I can tell you. They asked if it was a health issue. He said it was personal. Bowles also said he has a high confidence level that Brady will be the starter in week one. 
guys, what's your what's your idea of what this is about? I think it's just Tom Brady's 45 years old and doesn't want to be in training camp, so he's just taking some days off. I was going to say this sounds same. like it. Yeah, kind of sounds like that. This was part of the deal with him coming back. Yeah, it was like I re- I retired, but I'll come back if I don't have to be at training camp all the time. So is he re-retired until week one? Pretty much, yeah. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. (laughs) John Calipari, Kentucky basketball coach, declaring that Kentucky is a basketball school. Punch it. You've got to be be intentional. You've got to say we're doing this, and the reason is this is a basketball school. It's always been there. Alabama is a football school. So is Georgia. (laughs) I mean, they are. Right. This is a bad – don't dish – our football team – I hope they win games and 10 games and go to bowls. At the end of the day, that makes my job easier, and it makes the job of all of us easier. But this is a basketball school. And so we need to keep moving in that direction and keep doing what we're doing. Mark Stoops, the football coach at Kentucky, tweeted out, Basketball school? I thought we competed in the SEC. No offense, but I'm about to offend you is what John Calipari did. I don't know why he had to say that. There are some basketball schools. Hell, you could argue UCLA is a basketball school. You could argue Arizona is a basketball school. For a time, you could probably have argued that Oregon was a basketball school. But I get what John Calipari is trying to get at. He's trying to say, hey, it's basketball first. But, man, did he slap the football program in the face by saying so. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talking about Bill Russell's legacy. The number six retired by all NBA teams today. Punch it. Today I'm feeling like we have something really to celebrate uh, in looking at Bill Russell's life. You know, he he did so much to provide an example and, uh, you know, a practical example. Not somebody who talked a lot and didn't do anything, but someone who tried to get things done and uh, show the rest of us the way how to do it. Kareem talking about Bill Russell, 11-time NBA champion. His number six will be retired by every NBA team. First basketball player, first NBA player to have that honor. Leave it here. Anna's popping into the studio. She's next. to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 the game if you'd like to read me every day and get my column delivered right to your email inbox in real time baking news and other things as well make sure you're subscribed at johnconzano.com grab a free subscription grab a paid subscription whatever works for you johnconzano.com anna's popped into the studio anna i got I, I couldn't wait to tell you this tom brady stepping away for a little bit sounds like this was a planned hiatus that he didn't want to do a full training camp but remember he retired for like two months and he found out it life was hell at home with the kids and the family, and then he came back to football. <laughs> now, apparently, maybe this was a. Do you think this was a make good for Giselle? Like, okay, hey, let's be clear. I'm You're adding back. a little more into that narrative than what has <laughs> actually been substantiated mm. in the reporting. If it was great, do you think he would have come back? I just, 
You know, the the phrase personal issue or personal reasons raises an eyebrow to me. Uh, you think it was planned. Yeah, because it sounds like from the story, Todd Bowles, his coach, said this was something that was scheduled. Okay. In, you know, before the season started, he knew Brady wasn't going to be available at this point. I kind of think it goes to the point of, like, these players don't want to play the preseason. Tom Brady got in, he got in shape, he threw some balls, got to know his teammates, and now he's going, hey, I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, and I guess if you're Tom Brady and you're 45, 45, right? 45 years old, uh, that's probably a justifiable reason. We should all be able to do this. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to lie, though. I was a little worried when I saw the headline initially. I was like, uh-oh, trouble at home. He's yeah. got some reckoning with uh, old Giselle there. I I, I kind of think that this is going to start a trend. You me, remember in the NBA, Stephen, how like players would take maintenance days, and you know they, they would be like, hey, "This is a rest day," essentially on a on a road trip or whatnot. I kind of feel like we're going to see star players in the NFL negotiate these little hi, like preseason hiatus gigs. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Tom Brady, I'm I'm going to do it too, right? Like, I don't want to practice. I just want to go out there and get all the recognition in the game. So I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, it's happening so bad in the NBA that Adam Silver is trying to figure out ways to get people to stop, you know, taking rest days. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a bigger deal. But I think in football, it's probably smart to let your guys rest a little bit because especially guys like Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, I mean, they've been around the team for so long. They're ready to go. It doesn't matter. I could see Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson right now going, damn it. Why did I think of that? <laughs> see, it's I, brilliant. I think Tom Brady's the only player in the NFL that can do this. Just wait. But it's going to be setting a precedent. Just Maybe wait, Maybe this dude. is the end of preseason. I mean, he's not yeah. even going to play in the preseason game. Well, he'll be back for week one. None saying. of them play He won't the even pre-season. be around the team. He's, yeah. gone. he's away from the team. He needs a break. Guys, he needs a break. Who doesn't need a break? <laughs> this is the first time in my life I relate to Tom Brady. <laughs> Give me a break. Well, didn't he just have an entire offseason as a break? Yeah. Like, it hasn't even started yet. I think he took six weeks. And then, you know, and then he said he had to come back. Yeah, I believe he, it was 40 days he retired yeah. for. He he uh, took the trash cans out, like, say, 40 days. He took the trash cans out, like, five times. <laughs> and he went to the curb. He had to bring them back in. And then he went to the curb, and he had to bring them back in. And he's like, this is what we do? Hey, Giselle, Giselle, <laughs> Giselle was like, hey, Tom, can you uh, empty the dishwasher real quick? He's Tom's like, like, he's like I'm I'm on, I got to go make a phone call. I'm yeah, on the phone with the Buccaneers. She's like... <laughs> I haven't walked a runway in a decade. Could you please watch the kids for a few weeks? Hey, Tom, well, come walk the dog, will you? What? I actually think this is going to become a thing because I think you're going to have other star players go, hey, I need a week off in training camp. I'm going to come back. I'll get the timing with the players. I'll get in shape. But I'm not going to sit there and go through the motions. I need a mental break. And I think you're going to see this happen. I And I think Sean's right to an extent that Brady's the – Brady's the only one that could do this first. But, yeah. But just like I, I had an NBA GM at the time when this started becoming a thing where players would take the maintenance day who said, uh-oh, look out. Everybody's going to want a maintenance day. Once LeBron was taking them, then everyone's like, well, I'm like LeBron. You know, and so I think you're going to see. I think Aaron Rodgers is probably really mad right now that he didn't think of this first. It wasn't. Um, didn't Roger Clemens do this back in the day, like with the Yankees? Like he didn't show up until – the start of the year or mid-season, yeah. and you remember he's in the press box, and, oh, my God, he's Roger Clemens. Yeah, it, but I think some of this is players going, look, I've played long enough. You ought to trust me 
and I I will be better bef- because of it. It'll be interesting to see, too, because if he comes out in week one and he throws three interceptions, maybe this doesn't happen. Yeah. But let's say Tom Brady has this, you know, generational year at age, how old is he, 60? <laughs> you know, let's say he has this great year. Well, he, this is 45. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's say he has this great year, and I think it happens, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he was terrible in week one and last year against the Saints, and I don't think he did anything really in the preseason. I mean, he was at training camp. Yeah, to cleanse. Yeah, but this year he had to cleanse, yeah. yeah. He did. See, well, I, hey, if he has a good hey, year, there's going to be a lot of cleansing out of quarterbacks. I, I this is the kind of story that uh, Twitter is made for, to be honest, because <laughs> the comments are fantastic. Why don't you read us some of those comments? Uh, well, the theories, the running theories right now, he's taking a break to go recruit Gronk out of retirement. Mm. Um, he's missing the next 10 days so that he can go get some more plastic surgery to look ever younger yeah, that as was, he appears to be. That was my favorite one. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I like the one where it says uh, he's flying to Germany to have his blood swapped out with salient 18-year-olds. <laughs> Is that a thing? Blood swapping? Yeah, I think Lance Armstrong cornered the market on that. Is Jody Allen into that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lance, they would have a van pull up in the Tour de France next to him cycling. They would change his blood, you know. Uh, it, it's interesting. Yeah, my mind went to two places. One, I thought, uh-oh, trouble in the home front. Two, I thought, is this like Michael Jordan when Michael Jordan had the rumors about his gambling issue? And, you know, why did he sit out and go play baseball that year? Like, you know, has Tom Brady got some kind of scandal that he's involved in that's off the field? And then I read Bull's comments, and – I want to play him again because we have some of Bull's comments. Here's his head coach talking about him stepping away for personal reasons. And after I heard this, I went, oh, he just negotiated this little hiatus. He didn't want to take away reps from Blaine and uh, Kyle and as well as Griff as far as going into these next two games. And it's something he needs to handle. We trust him. We talked about it. It was like it was scheduled way before training camp and he will not be here until after Tennessee. Yeah, if he didn't have the years and the experience that the guy has and comes in and works diligently, I would definitely be concerned. It's a personal issue, and that, that's that's all I can tell you. It's like Dennis Rodman going to Vegas, you know? <laughs> Tom just needs like, to blow some steam off. I don't think this is like a break. Like, nothing's started yet. Like, he's coming off of his break. I just think when you're in a job for 30 years, you don't need training or orientation anymore. Like, Tom Brady doesn't need training camp anymore. This is probably the worst part of the gig for him. Anna? I don't know. I don't know. Your spider senses are tangling. It just feels like there's more to it. It's bizarre. Yeah, I think it's bizarre that, to me. I think, he, I think he needs. He wants to be fresh going into the season. All right, I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Dueling stories. That's what I'm calling this segment of radio. Anna, you got a story. I got a story. What is the premise of your story? Just give me the general subject matter of your story. Uh, Kobe Bryant's helicopter crash photos. Okay, my story can wait. Let's talk about your story. What What do you got? Well, I'm just I'm pretty interested in the trial that's going on right now. Uh, you know, his widow has sued. Uh, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And I'm really interested in 
the guy who decided to be a whistleblower. Mm. So this was, um, you know, just some guy in California who was at a bar who is telling a jury how disgusted he was when the bartender described the photos that a deputy had shown him just a few minutes earlier. And he filed a complaint with the sheriff's department from the driveway of his home. He's saying he felt he needed to do the right thing and let the sheriff's department know what happened. He was in disbelief of everything that he heard, and he was angry. And I, like, I think that's fantastic. Like, you know, we teach our kids to be upstanders, not bystanders, when they feel like something is wrong or unjust. And he did that. And it's because of that, you know, that this has all come to light. Further, it's insane to me that the sheriff's department didn't actually have a policy yeah. against their personnel abusing their access to the crash site. They actually, during the trial, they had a flow chart of how the photos spread from one deputy to more than a dozen deputies and then more than a dozen members of the L.A. County Fire Department. Uh, they were The photos were shared between deputies as they played Call of Duty video games. And at one point, Vanessa Bryant, um, you know, the pictures were essentially broken bodies. Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, it's close-up photos of broken bodies. Yeah. It, it shocks your conscience. That's what the attorney for Vanessa Bryant said. But Vanessa Bryant got up in, in tears and asked permission to leave the courtroom. And the judge said, you don't need my permission. Go. Like, she was upset by this. Um what does she want here? I mean, obviously, I, she doesn't need more money, right? And she doesn't necessarily need to put herself and her family through this kind of ordeal. Um, they have other things to do, I'm sure, in terms of healing and trying to, you know, figure out how to move on with their lives. But I, I really do kind of think that she's doing it in the public interest to send a message and to... Um, you know, consider it a warning shot to other entities that have access to a scene like that to have that material and to be responsible with it. You know, the other witness that I think is interesting is the bartender that was actually shown the photos from the deputy. And, you know, he's saying that he didn't recall much of the incident and looking at the photos, he denied laughing with the deputy over the photos of the bodies. Um... And I don't know what to make of that because I know, like, you know, you on one hand you could say, oh, oh, you know, what a barbarian for laughing at these photos. But I also know that in human nature sometimes when you come across something that is so shocking to the conscience that you don't – you sometimes have a reaction that doesn't match the the situation. So I, I don't know that I want to, like, lambast that bartender for now, that. In, in defense of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, if I'm just playing devil's advocate here, like – they need to take photos. This is a crime scene, potentially. Mm -hmm. This is an accident scene. This is a hillside. And so it was necessary to take photos. They needed photos to reconstruct what happened, what went wrong, if there's going to be, you know, if there was a malfunction of the aircraft or there was something else involved. Like, that's a crime scene at that point. And, they, and it's an accident scene. And they need to take photos. But I think where they go wrong is when they start sharing them and laughing about it. And, it, you know, they had no protocol for that. Yeah, and 
I mean, I don't want to be an apologist for the sheriff's department either in this case and, and, and the deputies that were involved that did this. But I do know, and you know as well from working in newsrooms, that there is a certain gallows humor that you develop um, when you work in news. Um, and it's the same type of gallows humor that comes with people who are first responders, paramedics, firefighters, um, police officers, people who are often the first to arrive at horrific scenes. So if we're having a real conversation about that, yes, there are things that get said in newsrooms or at crime scenes, things that happen that the general public would probably be appalled that you are even joking or saying things like that. And honestly, in part, it's because you're dealing with this kind of uh, grimy, uh, disturbing material all the time. So you do kind of develop a callus um, to, to psychologically deal with it, you know? Um, so there is a danger there. Like, we're, I'm always aware, like, when you go to a breaking news scene, like, you you have to always be aware that people might be watching you. And even though you kind of have this attitude there, yeah. you, you have to be responsible about you it. You have a job to do. Uh, the Sheriff's Department is saying that the photos were not leaked online, they were not leaked to the media, um, and they never got to the public. But I think that's beside the point. I think, I think there's going to be some... The jury here, I think it's going to be very difficult for the defense... Because this jury is seeing Vanessa Bryant, the emotion of it. Rob Palinka, the Lakers GM, was sobbing in the courtroom as well. And I was interested in the jury, and it turns out that the jury includes a nun, a college student, a real estate investor, a pharmaceutical researcher, computer science professor, a restaurant host, and someone who works in TV production for NBC Universal. I the NBC Universal one jumped out at me. Because I thought that's going to be somebody who potentially understands what you're talking about. That, yeah. hey, there was a job to do in, in a newsroom. But I just don't see a way that the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, you know, doesn't lose this case. There's, it's not happening. Well, and I don't – honestly, I'm a little surprised that it's even gone to this stage of a jury trial. So I don't – I'm curious about what the negotiations were because – to actually get to trial on this, the plaintiffs in this case, uh, Vanessa Bryant and um, you know the family. Others, yeah, other families are are plaintiffs in this case. They so. they must be resolute that they want um, some kind of resolution that does not necessarily involve an out of court settlement. Although that could still happen before the conclusion of the trial. Yeah, I I think it's going to be. I think you know I won't speak for Vanessa Bryant, but I would think. Part of her mission here is to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. Yeah. Feels that way. Okay, I have a lighter story to share. Okay. Next. It's wild. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. All right, I got kind of a wild story to share here. A little bit funny. But uh, this is interesting to me. I don't know why I uh, stumble onto this stuff, but my, uh, my algorithm uh, tells me this is stuff I'm interested in. Um, there's a couple of twins, okay? Identical twins. Okay. Okay. They went to one of these, and their names are Brittany and Brianna Sailors, okay? Okay. They went to um, 
one of these conventions where twins i didn't know twins did a thing they have a thing where they <laughs> go to conventions there's a convention for everything yeah. and then they meet other identical twins there oh wow and guess what happened they identical twin sisters uh-huh. started dating identical twin brothers okay wow, that's trippy it's a little weird yeah okay but what else happened is one of them got married Okay. And then the second one got married. So they married identical twin sisters, married identical twin brothers. Yes. Then they each had twin children. No way. Yeah, because it, it's genetic. I it, know. You know but kind of predisposed to it. Dang. So they always wanted to marry identical twins. Yeah. Share their lives together. Heartwarming stuff. But they met them at a twin, it's called a twin day festival in <laughs> Twinsburg, Ohio. Twinsburg. Okay. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So they went on to have sons. One of the sisters had, uh, you know, two boys, named them Jet and Jax. Mm-hmm. And the other one, four months later, had uh, two twins as well. Okay? Yeah. The children are technically, what, cousins, right? right. Like, like by... By birth. Yeah, they're cousins. Right. They would In any other situation, they would be considered cousins. But because they're identical twin parents on both sides, yes. the children are also genetic siblings. Ew. They're known as <laughs> give me the chills. quaternary twins. Quaternary? Because they have the same genetic makeup. Wow. And they are siblings, essentially. This is going too far. With the twin thing. Twinsburg, Ohio needs to stop. Okay? <laughs> when when does the reality show come out? That's what I want. Isn't that wild? That is wild. So, like, if they did an Ancestry.com test, that family tree would be oh, so weird. They'd be messed up, be man. be wonky. So they're actually cousins, but they would show up as siblings. siblings. Because they have the same genetic makeup. Because uh. mom and dad are both identical twins. Wow. And they... Trippy. Yeah. That, isn't that weird little uh, twist of fate? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So well. I wonder if there's other quaternary twins yeah. that would go to some festival and meet, you know, and then you have like eight kids that are all... No, because you've seen it. Like when identical twins... This happens, right? They marry identical twin of, of the other What gender, do you think that's or... about? Is that a psychological thing? Or just <laughs> what? I get it. You're a twin. It's cool. What, I mean, at least these two couples had separate weddings because a lot of them, they have like joint weddings and then it's just, wow, like... Really? There is, like, I think sisters have a bond anyway. Yeah. Like, I've seen it with the three girls in this household. Like, there's a bond there that is kind of interesting. Yeah. But I got to think if you're a twin, you literally were in, like, you know, you were in a close, confined area for nine months together. <laughs> then you come out and you decide you want to spend all your time together? I'd be running away. I'd be like, enough of you. I'm sick of you. So I have, I have twin cousins. Okay. Uh, a boy and a girl. Yeah, they're like really good friends. And I actually, uh, when I was in my mom's stomach, I was a twin as well. But the other one didn't survive, and I survived. So, and my family has a lot of twins' uh, genetics in it. So, do you, but you don't have twins. I don't have a twin. No, but skipped you. Yeah, but I was a twin, and the other one, you know. Wow. I, wow. I eliminated him. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You can say that. If I said that, uh, people would say I'm callous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you but, jerk. No, but yeah. so, and so uh, when we were trying to have kids, me and my wife, 
uh, she was having trouble, so she had to take some medication, which then added on to the twins cycle. So it was yeah. like a tw- it was like a twenty percent chance that we were gonna have twins, and me and my wife were not happy about it. We were like, "This is gonna be the worst thing." Ever. <laughs> no, you wouldn't have wanted twins because I to me it was like, well, I mean, you could be like done, you I know, if your goal that, was two children. That's a good point, but I just I mean I knew I could barely take care of myself at the time, so it's like I gotta take care of two children now and myself. Like that's that doesn't seem doable. Anna has a, uh, is it an uncle and an aunt who had three girls? And yeah. they, they wanted a boy. Asian household, they wanted a boy. Oh, yeah. They covet the boys. Oh, yes. Right? Oh, yeah. That's a big deal, right? In Chinese, Taiwanese culture, yeah. They like boys. They like boys. Uh-huh. They had three girls. They decided to try again. Yeah. And they had. No, they had another another girl. Another girl. Four girls. Four girls. Just... And then they tried again, and they wound up with twin girls. <laughs> They wound up with six girls. That's what you and get. And that's when they decided to quit. That's what you get. Okay. <laughs> God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Very fair. It's like, you really want a boy? Yeah. I'm going to give you six girls, well, six proms, six weddings. <laughs> there's something that happens when the when the doctor says, you know, remember, like, you go in, you have an ultrasound, whatever. You, you I don't know if you remember this when they were like, do you want to know the sex of the baby? Yeah. And we were like, yeah. yeah. Okay, yes, we want to know that. And there's something that happens when they say it's a girl. Mm-hmm. There's something in, like, in my mind. Yeah. I saw uh, two or three scenes immediately flash before my eyes. Because I remember, that, remember they wrote it, the first, they wrote it on a piece of paper. Yeah. And they said, you can open this at home. Yeah. And I was, like, dying to open this envelope. That was pretty creative. Yeah. yeah. So open it up, it says girl on the piece of paper. Immediately, I see some boy come into the doorstep to take her on a date. <laughs> That's what you fast Yep, immediately. Here. And then I think about, I better start practicing for a wedding speech. Oh. And then I thought, you know what? God is very fair. I see what you did to me. Three girls. Hey, God, you were paying attention when I was in college, were you not? I got it. Okay? All those Message hearts, received. All those hearts you broke along the way. Message received, man. <laughs> But uh, I, to me, I just wanted healthy kids, right? You know, I wanted kids that, you know, yeah, healthy kids that can. They you now they're all scrapping with each other and stuff. And <laughs> it's a fun household. But I, I just thought that story was interesting because I have seen. I had, and I also grew up with one of my good friends was a twin. Uh-huh. Growing up, it was Tim and Tom. Okay. Okay. I knew him when I was young. Now Tim and Tom had. Sisters that were two years younger, yeah, Jill and Jane. So they were two sets of identical twins Wait, that the parents had. In the same family? Yeah. They had Tim and Tom and Jill and Jane. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that, that mom, that poor mom. Yeah. She looked like, you know how sometimes you'll see a mom, you'll be at a park or the grocery store, and you'll see a mom who's fairly new mom. Maybe yeah. they got like a, a baby and a baby born and then they're pushing another one in a stroller yeah. and then there's another kid hanging off the grocery cart. Yeah. And that mom has that look in her eye. Like she's at, she's, at her wit's end. Now, I think she's kind of, you know, wrestling with mental illness <laughs> that was designed by all these children and looking at you like it gives you the look like she's being held hostage as she passes you in the grocery store, like your eyes meet. And but Tim and Tom and Jill and Jane's mom had that look. Tim, Tom, Jill and, Jill Jane. and Jane. Yeah. 
And by the way, if you see a mom like that in the grocery store, help her with her bags or something. Hold the door for her. Have an least. adult conversation with her. Yeah. Just tell her, hey, how's the stock market looking today? Yeah, talk about <laughs> something besides child rearing. I feel like if I had twins, I wouldn't want to name them like Tim and Tom and Jill and Jane. I would just give them their two different identities. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. my cousins, it's a boy and a girl, but it's Travis and Camille. Like they're not even close. Yeah. That's wise. That works. That's wise. Well, I would have named him Captain and Tennille. You think most twins get sick of each other? I don't know. I, I see a lot of twins that are hanging out. Yeah, you know? I can see that too. Like just best friends. But even best friends get sick of each other. I think to, to be a twin, you have to get really sick. <laughs> at one point in your life, you get really Sean. sick of the other one. Sean, Sean, there's a little Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers in what you just said. Even best friends get sick of each other. <laughs> Find the helpers. Can you just say find the helpers, Let's put Sean. on your sweater now and let's go over and do a puppet show. I want you to leave it here. The 5 at 5 is coming up. You got the BFT statewide. For all the twins listening to the show, shout out to you. Appreciate that you're listening to this radio program. <laughs> uh, we have one hour to go. It's the happy hour, and it's coming up next. Stick around for it. Uh, it, it, is, it always delivers. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. Happy hour is upon us. I'm glad you're along for the ride. We're going to give you the five biggest, best, greatest kind of sort of stories going on in the world. Included in it, uh, Field of Dreams and some betting odds. Anna's going to get into the gambling world. We'll do all of that as part of the five at five. The five at five. I like Field of Dreams. I like Kevin Costner in the movie Field of Dreams. I like Vin Scully doing a Field of Dreams impression. You give me Field of Dreams and I'll watch it. The ballpark at Field of Dreams ended up uh, with a walk-off home run in the cornfields in 2021. Oh, yeah, they're doing a ball game out there. It's a tradition. Major League Baseball is back in heaven tonight. Or is it Iowa? The Cubs and the Reds will meet at the ballpark that was part of the iconic 1989 movie Field of Dreams. They will play a game, and they're going to have Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. play a game of catch as part of this game. I love this. I think it's a great idea. Uh, you know, I'll give you a little bit of Vin Scully, but I think this is a wonderful testament to baseball and cornfields. I love it. Ray, people will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Oh, of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person, and they'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. Vin Scully, Field of Dreams, Major League Baseball, got this one right. Number two, Anna, go. Oh, Steven picked up on this little nugget earlier today. No, this doesn't have to do with sports, but Odds Shark has Kim Kardashian's next 
boyfriend odds. On the list, a little bit confusing to me, Pete Davidson. So whoa, that whoa, whoa, would whoa, be wait, like a wait. throwback. Because they were just they just broke up. I know. So he's on the list. But so are Nick Cannon, plus 1,000. Mm. Harry Styles, I don't think so, plus 2,000. See, Kanye's on there, too, plus 2,200. Okay. Is Michael B. Jordan on that list? He is. That, okay, that, he, that's the long shot. That's the good one. That's a good, I like that bet. He just had a split with Lori Harvey. It was just announced in the last 24 hours. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Michael B. Jordan, what are the odds on him? Plus 3,300. Bested only by Eminem plus 6500. No, Eminem's not in there. She's already she's already gone music and rapping and all that. She's going actor. Have you seen the video of uh, Michael B. Jordan at the finals this year? No. They they showed uh, Michael B. Jordan. He was sitting courtside, and the guy was almost in tears. Like he was clearly going through something. Like at the finals game, he was like clearly like super upset. You should mm. look it up. Sounds huh. like Kim K can uh, heal that. Exactly. <laughs> Lori Harvey. Who I don't know from Paul Harvey. Uh, <laughs> she's might a, be related, she's a model. Might be not. She's a model. Shocker. That Shocker. broke up with Michael B. Jordan earlier this year, and I think that's why he was crying. Um, she said she's in a sexier place when it comes to her love life now. Oh, wow. Ouch. I kind of feel like Kardashian's going to go Michael B. Jordan. Well, Johnny Depp's also a long shot on there, plus 10,000, and. Donald Trump's on there. Plus, no, get out of here. Trump. That's not it's happening. Shot. She's trying to be vice president. <laughs> <laughs> Lori Harvey. She says she dates on her terms. I'm with you, John. Michael B. Jordan, 33 to one. Pretty tasty. I think. I kind of feel like that's a sure thing right now. Yeah, Chris, like Chris Evans was on there, the uh, uh -huh. Bengals backup running back, and he, yeah. he commented on it, the eye emoji, you know, like the eyeball emoji. <laughs> Watch out for him. I think Kardashian's next victim will be Michael B. Jordan. I feel like we should put some real money on I, I'm down. Coming in. Does, does uh, the Oregon Lottery's uh, scoreboard app take this wager? <laughs> Can't even do college football yet. <laughs> Does this count? Uh, that's a good one. By the way, that's Steve Harvey's daughter. It really is? Yeah. Oh, okay. I like Steve Harvey. Yeah, I like Paul Harvey. <laughs> I like Steve Harvey. I didn't know that. I like those Harveys. Steve Harvey's got a good heart. Uh, Number three. <laughs> that guy's made a living out yeah. of just reacting to things. Yeah. You know? He's funny. He's just all about the reaction. <laughs> We surveyed 100 people. Top five answers on the board. Tell me a soup that has no business being in your kitchen. Chicken soup. Ding. That's, that's his job. <laughs> Who will be Kim Kardashian's next boyfriend? Top five answers on the board. <laughs> Tom Brady is stepping away from the Buccaneers. That's the number three story. He's got to deal with some personal things. Personally, he doesn't like the NFL's preseason. So Tom Brady apparently negotiated some kind of hiatus with the Buccaneers. It's confusing, but Todd Bowles, the coach, said he's not worried about it. Brady will be back. The Buccaneers will give the reps to Blaine Gabbert and some others. Brady will be back for the opener. Bowles says he expects him to be ready, in uniform. 
I expect other star quarterbacks and other star players to do what Tom Brady's doing. Mark my words, this will not be the end of NFL players skipping out on training camp. Anna, number four. Former NFL star Earl Thomas of the Ravens, his home has been struck by lightning. This is breaking news. Uh Firefighters are currently battling a massive fire at his home in Orange, Texas. It caught fire not long ago, and there are giant flames coming from the home. Massive flames from a massive home. That is not good. All I can think about is Robert Redford and that Wonder Boy bat. That tree got struck by lightning. And he made it, he turned it into his bat. Don't laugh at this guy's house. I'm not laughing. Fire. Robert, you're like, making light of it. Robert Redford hit a bunch of home runs in that movie. A natural. You know? Luck. The guy from Cocoon was his manager. Finally, yeah, bad luck. How about these people? You see these stories where people get hit by lightning, like not once but twice. Yeah, that is unbelievable. Go buy a lottery ticket. Finally, the final thing in our five at five. Trevor Bauer, who allegedly sexually assaulted a woman in San Diego, he filed a lawsuit against her. The San Diego woman has filed a countersuit. Bauer denies abusing her. He said he met her through social media. He sued her for defamation, claiming she lied about details of their encounters to destroy his reputation. Major League Baseball suspended Bauer for two years. Bauer says it was consensual and rough, but he did nothing to warrant a suspension. The woman says he punched her, he choked her. Bauer's attorneys released a statement pointing to a uh, judge's decision last year that denied the woman a restraining order. This Trevor Bauer thing, man, baseball brought the hammer down on him. Meanwhile, the NFL is struggling to get to Sean Watson a a six-game suspension. Like, they're just falling over themselves. It gives you the power of the Players Association in the NFL. Trevor Bauer losing good years of his career... Will he ever pitch again? Who knows? Unprecedented. He's got a 324-game ban. Meanwhile, Deshaun Watson. I was going to say searching for a happy ending, but no. Deshaun Watson facing uh, the wrath of Roger Goodell. That's our 5 at 5. Why are you shaking your head at me? Because I'm shaking my head at Wait, me. I thought that was rather clever. Uh, yeah, well, you said it without <laughs> saying it, but I, actually you said it. So. I, yeah, I did one of those things. Yeah, one of did. those. All right, let's get back to the important story, this Kardashian thing. <laughs> uh, I got Michael B. Jordan. We should do a pool. We should do a draft pool. Oh, yeah. Where we put everybody who, who's potentially a candidate to date Kim Kardashian in a hat. Mm-hmm. And then we pull them out. And, you know, I think it's going to be Michael B. Jordan. Just you know? pull it out of a hat. Shouldn't I don't we know. do draft like, him? Shouldn't we do like a bingo board type thing, you know, mm-hmm. where if you you get a certain number right, you're the winner? Okay, I, I don't know. Yeah. Because look, she's done she's done professional athlete thing. Yeah. She's done musician, musician Kanye. Mhm. She's done uh the comedian thing, Pete, Saturday Night Live. She's yeah. she's done with Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So she will now pivot into acting. That's where she needs to go. Yes, this is not about love. This is about 
her brand and reaching maximum audience, reaching new people. Wouldn't it be refreshing if she just wound up with like someone normal? She got she's dating the barista <laughs> at Starbucks. So she went through the drive through, noticed him, <laughs> sent him a note, I noticed you. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like don't want to be creepy. My name's Kim. She yeah. had her phone no. number on the receipt. <laughs> that ain't happening. That's not her style. This is all orchestrated. It's her, her mom, her sisters. They're sitting around going, okay, who do we ruin next? That's what they're doing. <laughs> who can we chew up yeah. in the Kardashian machine? Isn't Michael the other B. option is Jamie Foxx? He's 12 yeah. to 1. Mm. He's Michael, on there. Yeah, I think Jamie Foxx or Michael B. Jordan are the, are the two good answers. He's can 12 I, to 1, and Michael B. Jordan's 33 to 1. Can yeah. I throw one at you guys? Yeah, go ahead. Kevin Durant. Oh boy! But that's back to the sports. Yeah, you, there's no that. way she goes Genre. for another professional athlete. Yeah, I think she's she did, it was, she dated Reggie Bush, she dated Chris Humphreys. You know, she's done that. She exhausted that job. She's done everything. Yeah. Has she? Is is there been an actor yet? Or no? No. No actors. Pete Davidson's the closest it gets. If you qualify him as an actor, he's been in a movie. But yeah. he, but I think that was. I think she's going into new genres. It's you know it's interesting. How about a politician? Yeah, she so hasn't waded into the politician. Van world, Jones yeah. is leading this list, isn't that? It's a CNN person, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. That, that would be a new one. Yeah. That'd be a new thing. Yeah. But like, it, I just find it kind of strange <laughs> that this is what they do. You know. I find it strange that we're discussing. I don't. We're talking about at it at this length. Everybody's talking about it. Are we though? Are they? I bet they are. Oh. Look at what we've talked about today. We talked about Michael Schill leaving Oregon. We talked to the Big Sky Conference Commissioner about football. We, you know, we talked about Tom Brady not being in trading camp. We talked about, you know, Trevor Bauer. We talked about, you know, <laughs> my. We've talked about all. We've exhausted. Like we've talked about. The non-conference games in the Pac-12. We talked about Blazers numbers. We talked about Bill Russell's uniform number. Can we can we talk a little trash on this show? I think we should have a timer. We should have a Kardashian discussion timer set at like three and a half minutes. And once we hit the timer, we've met our quota for the day and we, we need to move on. We're not quite there yet. I think we are. No, I don't think yeah. we are. Well, you, but, you know by retweeting that and commenting, Anna, your your algorithm is going to be having Kim Kardashian stuff all, all over Twitter now. <laughs> There's the timer. That's Just it. On. We're done. Now, we, what are we talking about now? We got, you know? Uh, all right, we'll figure it out coming up. You got the bald face truth. Leave it here. Where will this show go? Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Yes, coming down the pipeline, uh, Pac 12 Conference is going to give us Martin Hanks. In the run-up to the Oregon-Georgia game on September 3rd in Atlanta, this show will be going on the road to Atlanta. We will be live from Atlanta in a couple of few days before the game. If you're going out to the game, I'll let you know where we're broadcasting from, but should be a lot of fun to be on location. I want to pivot a little bit to those non-conference games that uh, are so important to the Pac-12 conference. I was thinking a lot about it today, uh, and looking really at the opportunities for the Pac-12 conference in non-conference play, there are a ton of opportunities that begin with that game at Georgia. Now, do I think Oregon is going to beat Georgia on September 3rd? I do not. 
uh, I also don't think that uh, that uh, Oregon is going to uh, play extremely close in that game. But I think Oregon will cover the 18-point spread. I've been on record talking about that. I'm I'm a little nervous about that, but uh, only because Dan Lanning is coaching his first game as Oregon's head coach. But I want to talk about the most intriguing non-conference games of the schedule that are coming up. We all talk about Georgia-Oregon, so let's skip that one. Let's talk about the other games. Utah is at Florida also same day, September 3rd. Um, Florida, by the way, won the 2008 BCS championship. People may remember in 2008, Utah was the only unbeaten team in all of Division I. Kyle Whittingham remains the head coach at Utah all these years later. But most of these players were like in preschool back then. So it's not like this is going to be like the title game we never got. But I think it's interesting to see a Pac-12 team go into SEC country, go into the swamp, even an SEC team that is a middle-of-the-road SEC team. This is the Pac-12 favorite going to Gainesville. I think it's really important for Utah to play well. And I said it earlier in the show, I think Utah needs to punch Florida in the nose in that game. I think it would be big for the conference. Other big non-conference games. Let's go to week two. Arizona State's going to Oklahoma State. I don't trust Arizona State. I don't trust what Herm Edwards is doing. I like Herm Edwards. I think he's a great quote. Um, I I won't be surprised if Arizona State is surprisingly good, uh, but I'm not positive that anybody should trust Arizona State in a football game. This could be the year Herm Edwards gets fired. It could be the year Herm Edwards wins eight or nine games. I don't know. Oklahoma State broke out last year. They were inches away from the Big 12 championship and maybe getting to the playoff. They won the Fiesta Bowl. Um, They had an outstanding defense. Derek Mason, the former Stanford uh, coordinator, is now calling the plays on defense. And I think Oklahoma State is going to be a really interesting challenge for Arizona State on September 10th. But these are the kinds of games that if the Pac-12 wants respect nationally, they got to win these games. The Big 12 fans laugh at the Pac-12. This is a kind of game where you get a Oklahoma State team that's a pretty decent Big 12 opponent playing against an Arizona State team that is perennially underachieved. This is an important game. Uh, Washington State goes to Wisconsin same week. It was a weird season last year. Nick Rolovich, all of that, ring it up. But Cameron Ward and Washington State going to Wisconsin is interesting. It's a tough place to play. It's like a bowling alley where, you know, 70,000 people show up. Uh, it, but Camp Randall Stadium there in Wisconsin is, uh, it's a tough place. But I actually think Washington State can go in there, and I, I think they can win that game. I'm not saying they're gonna, they will win it, but I think they will be in that game in Week 2. That would be a big one for the Pac-12 Conference to get. Another one comes in Week 3. Washington hosts Michigan State. I don't know if Kalen DeBoer is going to have it together yet this season, but I kind of feel that Washington could be a little disruptive in this year. Now, Mel Tucker was at Colorado prior to going to Michigan State. Everybody thinks that Michigan State will be a top half of the Big Ten Conference team. Washington is probably a middle-of-the-pack at best team in the Pac-12 but there's an opportunity there for the Pac-12 if it really wants to fortify its reputation. It, this is a home game for Washington. Michigan State, you know, and Mel Tucker coming to Seattle. This is an opportunity. 
Uh, let's go to week three. Cal is at Notre Dame. Now, these teams haven't played since 1967. But Notre Dame's going to play three Pac-12 opponents this season. There's a bunch of focus on Notre Dame. And so I think it's really important, as USC, Stanford, and Cal will all play Notre Dame, I think it's super important that the Pac-12 teams win this series or uh, play this series, uh, you know, not don't get swept in this series, essentially. And I, now, look, USC, Notre Dame, it, you know, even if USC wins that game, credit's not going to go to the Pac-12. So I think it's important Cal at Notre Dame, Stanford at home against Notre Dame, really big games. Uh, another game that is taking place in the opening week of the season. Nobody's talking about this game. Arizona goes to San Diego State. This feels like an ambush to me for San Diego State. San Diego State is a perennial contender in the Mountain West. They're going to open their stadium with this visit. I've seen this happen before. I don't like this game for Arizona. I think San Diego State and uh, is going to be rocking in week one. They're going to be back in their stadium, and I, I think the, the Pac-12 is going to have an embarrassing moment there in week one. They're going to need to overcome that. Hey, John, you uh, know who yeah. the San Diego State quarterback is? Braxton Go. Burmeister. Yeah. <laughs> Former Duck. Yeah. I, I, and I don't, I just, I don't, I think, look, that might be the game where we start talking seriously about San Diego State being a Pac-12 team because they had success a year ago, as did BYU. And I think they're going to be better than Arizona in that game. Now, of the games I threw out, guys, where does your mind go for opportunities for the Pac-12? Because they've got to be better than they were a year ago in these non-conference games. Yeah, I think uh, the first one that comes to me is Washington-Michigan State. I'm a little lower on Michigan State than I know the poll is. They were 14th in the coaches' poll. But I think Washington can beat them in Seattle. Uh, you talked about Arizona State, Oklahoma State. I, I don't see Arizona State going on the road to winning that game. So, for me, I think it really is that Washington-Michigan State game because it's the Big Ten, right? And everyone's talking about the Big Ten and all the Pac-12 schools coming over there. So if you can get a Washington team who was 4-8 a season ago, new coach, that's going to build a lot of momentum for, I think, the Pac-12 just nationally. Uh, and Washington is one of those brand-name Pac-12 schools along with Oregon, USC. So I think that's a big one. I think that's one that Washington can actually get. So that's the one that I, I'm really looking forward to watch. Yeah, week one's going to be huge. Obviously, the uh, Oregon-Georgia game, just keeping that respectful, it, respectable. If you're uh, Oregon, you're you're within those 18 points. And then Utah's got to beat Florida, I think. You know, that one's big because it's uh, maybe not middle of the pack SEC, but it's probably their fourth or fifth best team in the SEC. So you got to have the number one team in the Pac-12 beat them on the road. Well, just for that, Sean, they were voted uh, fourth in the East. Fourth not in even the in the East. SEC, but in the, in the weaker division, they were voted fourth by the wow. media. And and I think uh, those Pac-12 versus Big Ten games, you know, with everything we've seen this offseason, Washington versus Michigan State. And then I, you know, Washington State at Wisconsin, I think it's just a fascinating matchup. That's yeah, going to be a, that one. You, that one, just opposites, right? Polar opposites. They're going to go in. I guess it won't be that cold in, uh, in Wisconsin quite yet like it is at the end of the season, but still going to be a really tough place to play. Just a jam-packed, uh, really high-capacity stadium and a team, they're going to, you know, the air raid, or maybe a little bit different, not the air raid anymore, but a passing attack with Washington State's going to play uh, a team that kind of wants to punch you in the throat in Wisconsin. So I, I, I hope that the Pac-12 can maybe go 1-1 one and one or maybe 2-0 and oh against the Big Ten in the, those games I like I like Washington State against Wisconsin I, I think I think that is a game that the Pac-12 can win I like the game you guys talked about Utah going to Florida but I want to point out a couple of other games because I think what happens is 
we look at the big ones. We look at the marquee matchups, but your non-conference record against other conferences really gets tipped one way or the other in games where, like, BYU a year ago went 5-0 and against the Pac-12. So I think week three, BYU goes to Autzen Stadium. That's a really important game for Oregon because it could – like it will likely be the difference between Oregon starting one and two or two and one. It will also be a big twelve versus Pac twelve sort of feel to it, right? As BYU joins the Big Twelve Conference, and so people are looking at that. Kalani Sataki interviewed for Dan Lanning's job and didn't get it. The BYU coach, I I think he was. I think he would have turned it down if he was offered it. But I think Sataki was. You know, he's trying to get a raise. He interviewed for the job and. He didn't get it. He stayed at BYU, and he got an extension and a raise. But um, I think it's a really important game. And then the other two games that I think really could tip the numbers for or against the Pac-12, it's Oregon State. They open with Boise State. They go to Fresno in Week 2. Where are they after two games? Are they 2-0? and Are they 0-2? Like, they have historically not started fast. Uh, and But Jonathan Smith on Media Day, he started talking about wanting to win all 12 games. You don't get to 12 if you don't get to 2-0. and oh. And so I think it's really important that Oregon State gets those early games. They have Boise State at home. And this is not, you know, this is not a... Uh, uh, a Boise, a Chris Peterson Boise State. It's not a Bryce, uh, Brian Harson Boise State team. This is a winnable game for Oregon State at home. If Oregon State show up, shows up to play, and then they go to Fresno in Week Two, that is a tough place to play. I covered Fresno State. I watched Pac-12 teams go in there and lose. I saw Cal lose there. I saw Oregon State lose there. They are tough. I saw TCU lose there. It that is a tough place to play. The fans there are rabid. Um, you know, the fans are right on top of the opposing team. They're throwing stuff at the team. The Hawaii players will tell you they got batteries thrown at them. They had screwdrivers thrown at them. It was like, you know, it's just you walk down the ramp into that stadium and you're walking into an ambush and you're walking into September weather in Central California that can push, you know, 90 degrees or warmer. In, and so I think if Oregon State doesn't have its stuff together, they're going to get they're going to get ambushed there. But I, I think those are the kinds of games where I go, hey, you know, we all talk about Oregon going and playing Georgia, and we talk about Utah, Florida. But if you can beat BYU and Boise State and Fresno State and San Diego State, you start to fortify your non-conference record. The, the Pac-12 was historically bad in the non-conference a year ago. It was terrible. They've got to be better this year. Yeah, and you talk about Oregon State real quick. If the Oregon State loses in either of those games, it's looked at it's a no-win situation, right? Because Oregon State is the Pac-12, Fresno State, Boise State, Mountain West. It's a no-win situation. You're expected to win those games. But Boise State was voted first in the Mountain Division. Fresno State voted first in the West Division. So these are the top two teams in the Mountain West, and Oregon State has them on their schedule. So like you said, it's going to be tough to get both those wins. But it, these are the type of games that if you're John Smith and Oregon State, you got to get those wins if you want to be considered serious. And I'll tell you, the kids that play at Boise State, San Diego State, and Fresno State, they circle these games on their calendar because they wanted to play in the Pac-12, and in some cases they did play in the Pac-12. And they transferred out, or they they were told they're not good enough, or they, they weren't offered scholarships, and and they come into that game with a chip on their shoulder. And I, I will never forget USC and Reggie Bush. 
playing against Fresno State, and Pat Hill's teams at Fresno State, and it was like watching a video game. I mean, they went back and forth, punch for punch. It was like, you know, the, you know Reggie Bush and USC won the game, but Fresno State took them to the mattresses, and we have seen that from those teams historically, and especially last year. So I think that, you know, non-conference games, yeah, we can focus on the sexy matchups, but you make hay when you play the Mountain West. You got Pac-12's got to prove it's better than the Mountain West this year. And talking about USC, sorry, John, they play you, they play Fresno State week three right after they're at Stanford. That's a that's a tricky spot for them. Jeff Tedford, and you look at Jake Hayner at quarterback. Um, they'll be good on offense. I don't know what they're going to be like on defense. I don't know what they've lost, but they will score points. So uh, you know, look out. I think the Pac-12's. They just need to prove they're better than the Mountain West. I mean, we can't have we can't be having that same conversation again a month into the season that how the Mountain West is dominating the Pac-12. That's embarrassing. Leave it here. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I don't know if I would go to Iowa to see this uh, Field of Dreams, but man, do I like that movie. Best sports movies ever. Can we talk about that today? Like you, you, you can't do this conversation every day, but best sports movies ever. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Um, I'm going to throw out Field of Dreams because just because I like it so much. And, you know, you obviously have... James Earl Jones, you got Kevin Costner, you got, you know, Moonlight Graham. You just it, phenomenal to see the shoeless Joe Jackson and, you know, Kevin Costner. Dad, can let's play a catch, you know, but James Earl Jones, come on. Ray. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway. Not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. Where it is money they have, and peace they like. James Earl Jones is phenomenal in that movie. I want your favorite sports movies, best sports movies of all time at 503-417-7575. Let's go. Uh, we'll also talk some college football. If you want to tell me about your non-conference games, I was talking about it just a minute ago. I'll take those calls as well. we got some people holding that want to talk football. I'm always up to talk college football. Reese is on Highway 43. Reese, welcome. John Boy, uh, I stayed on hold for you during the commercial break, and I kind of thought through it as you were talking about BYU game. So you already covered it. But I really think it's important to note that that BYU last season, I think they went like 6-0 and or maybe even better than that. 5-0. 5-0 against, against the Pac-12. Yeah. Okay, 5-0. and They basically won the Pac-12 South. And, like, the, Oregon as a brand for the Pac-12 during a very critical time while they're negotiating TV contracts needs to stay relevant into October. And so we're all assuming Georgia's going to come as a well-oiled machine, and, and whether they blow the doors off or Oregon shows up, either way, it's probably a loss. And if the second or number one brand in the Pac-12 at this time 
is 0-2 or 1-2 through their first three games and pretty much out of the national conversation, that, that's kind of harmful to the Pac-12 as a whole and as its brand. So I think that BYU game is going to be a sneaky, important game to not just Oregon season, but Pac-12 as a brand. And by the way, best uh, movie that's not um, Field of Dreams has to be Cool Runnings. Cool Runnings is good, too. I remember the Jamaican bobsled team. I also like Bull Durham. I'm, I'm partial to baseball movies. I don't know. Like, you know, and, and by the way, everyone will trot out, like, Susan Sarandon's, you know, I believe rant. You know the rant? I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. What do you believe in that? Well, I believe in the soul. The small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, but the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Good night. Good night, Kevin Costner. But you know what the best rant in that movie is? It's not Costner. It's not Sarandon. It's not Tim Robbins, Nuke Lelouch. The best, the best rant in that movie is when the manager threw everyone into the showers and said, you know, you're a bunch of lollygaggers. Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi, nine Mississippi, ten Mississippi. You guys, you lollygag the ball around the empty. You lollygag your way down the first. You lollygag in and out of the dugout. Do you know what that makes you, Larry? Lollygaggers. Lollygaggers. What's our record, Larry? Eight and sixteen. How did we ever win eight? It's- How did we ever win eight? I love that. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Mike's in Northeast Portland. Mike, welcome to the conversation. Hey, hey John. How you doing? Doing well. I, I, liked, uh, I liked The Natural and a very old movie called Fear Strikes Out, the Jimmy Pearsall story when it comes oh, that, to baseball movies. Is that the one where he climbs the backstop? Yeah, he, uh, he had some mental health issues back in the yeah. day. and Great player. Uh, here, I got a scene from The Natural right here. here here's uh, Roy Hobbs talking about his bat. Not bad, kid. What'd you get? I made it myself from a tree near home. Wonder Boy. Put that on there. What does it mean? I made it a long time ago when I was a kid. I wanted it to be a very special bat. How about this? It's lightning bolt. The tree that I made it from was split open by lightning. Don't figure this. All those years and you never played organized baseball? Well, I sort of got sidetracked. Red, major that way. If it comes up to specifications, we'll let you use it. Knock the cover off the ball. Sean's in Sandy. Sean, what do you got? Sean, are you there? Sean is not there. That's too bad. How about Sean in studio? Sean, you got a movie? Yeah, I got a couple. Uh, Moneyball, I really mm. like. I really like uh, The Blind Side. Um, and uh, Friday Night Lights is another good one. There's a ton of good ones. There are so many good sports movies. I got a Friday Night Lights uh, clip here. Let's play that.
music. Sorry, actually is the music Friday Night Lights. Let's go to the phone lines. Marcus is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Marcus, go ahead. So I got kind of an underappreciated one for you, but it's nostalgic for me. Um, my, I went to a very small high school. We only went to school half days on Fridays. So every Friday we would get off at lunch uh, during football season. We would go up to my house, eat a ton of food for the football game, and watch Varsity Blues. Oh, you like that. That just that takes you back, doesn't it? Yeah, you probably can't play too many clips from it, to be honest, yeah. but uh, a really underappreciated football movie. Yeah, there you go, Varsity Blues. Check that out. Steven, you got a movie? Well, yeah, Varsity Blues, I mean, the whipped cream scene. Not, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't hate it. Um, <laughs> but uh, my initial thoughts were uh, Major League. I love Major League. And uh, White Men Can't Jump. You like guy. the original Major League? Yeah, the original Major League yeah. is much better than Major League 2 or Major League 3, Back to the Minors. Yeah, I like the original Major League. But, uh, Ser- yeah. Serrano. Serrano, yeah. And Rick Wildthing Vaughn, you know, as my last name being Vaughn, I always uh, claim, oh. claim his as my uncle, Uncle Rick. Uh, yeah, and then White Man Can Jump as a basketball movie. Also, like Blue Chips as well. I, I forgot to throw in Miracle on Ice. It's a great one. You like that one? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's a good one, too. Here's that clip from Major League. You have uh, financial problems? I can put you onto a great investment guy. No, uh, I don't have much of a portfolio right now, but you know what I was concerned about was uh, why you didn't come up with that grounder that Riker hit in the ninth. It was out of my reach. What do you want me to do, die for it? Raj, could have meant the game. Year after this, I go free agent. Plus, my agent and I got a couple of plans for life after baseball. So I'm not about to risk major injury or to face this property for a collection of stiffs. Hey, <laughs> that movie was rich, man. What leagues you play in? California penal. <laughs> I love that. I also love like when you talk about uh, movie rants. Al Pacino in any given Sunday. Uh, that speech he gives where he pep talks everybody up. I don't want to play the whole thing because it's like insane. It's like four minutes long. But there's a moment in that scene that like like the hair stands up on my arms because I'm literally going like Pacino. You know when you get old in life. Things get taken from. I mean, that's 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 part of life. But you only learn that when you start losing stuff. You find out life's this game of inches. So is football. Because in either game, life or football, the margin for error is so small. I mean, one half a step too late or too early, and you don't quite make it. One half second too slow, too fast, you don't quite catch it. The inches we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute, every second. On this team, we fight for that inch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the difference between winning and losing. Between living and dying. I'll tell you this, in any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's going to win that itch. And I know if I'm going to have any life anymore, it's because I'm still willing. 
to fight and die for that itch. Because that's what living is. The six inches in front of your face. Now, I can't make you do it. You got to look at the guy next to you. Look into his eyes. Now, I think you're going to see a guy who will go that inch with you. You're going to see a guy who will sacrifice himself for this team because he knows when it comes down to it, you're going to do the same for him. That's the team, gentlemen. And either we heal now as a team or we will die as individuals. Love that speech from Pacino. I mean, you can apply that to your like. Do you want to run through a wall for that guy right now? That's good acting. Leave it here. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on seven fifty. The game. Peter Sampson and The Pulse coming up top of the hour in Portland on 750 The Game. I'm asking you about your favorite sports movies of all time. Mark's in Portland. He's got a good one. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, yeah, I'm, I I would probably start with uh, Brian's song, which is because James Caan just left us, and uh, that was a great movie about uh, Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo and the, the, the first uh, white and black to room together, and so there's a lot of history there. And then Cinderella Man. Uh, it was a great movie uh, yeah. about Jimmy Braxton during the Depression and how everybody gave up on him. He came back and beat a great champion. It, 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 you know, it's a great movie. And then uh, Vision Quest is a great movie yes. about wrestling. It, I mean, that movie uh, I wrestled, and it's as it's as realistic as you can get as far as the sport of the sport of wrestling. And uh, he, you know, he goes has that vision his junior year that he's going to wrestle at 168 pounds against you know the ultimate shot uh, who's yeah, it was an animal, and it's just a great movie, the way they, they brought that yeah. together, a little love story with the 21-year-old when you're 18. What yeah, a life. Matthew Modine and Madonna has a cameo in that movie. She's yeah. singing. You know, that, you know what I loved about that movie the most, though, is that scene where Matthew Modine's working at a, at a hotel, and he's telling the chef who wants to come see him wrestle that right, it's, right. Not, it's not a big deal. It's just six minutes. And, yeah, that was a great scene, John. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, thank you, Mark, for that. And and then the chef goes, you know, he starts talking about seeing Pele play soccer, and, and Pele had done a bicycle kick, and now Pele's running around the stadium, and he says, he says, it's not the six minutes, it's what happens in the six minutes. It's such a testament to the power of sport. Let's go to Roman, who's in Lake Oswego. Roman, what's up, man? Well, hey, John, thanks for taking my call. No, um... Old school. I'm not even a baseball fan. Old school, but I love "Bang the Drum Slowly" with uh, Robert De Niro, and I think John Voight. Robert De Niro has cancer. He confides in his baseball teammate John Voight, who's the pitcher, and eventually the whole team finds out. And it's just it's kind of schmaltzy. I haven't seen it in like forever, so hopefully it stood up and took the test of time, but a great early uh, De Niro performance. Yeah, I love that. 1973, Robert De Niro, and, you know, uh, he was little known at that time. It wasn't like you were getting Robert De Niro, you know, Oscar winner, but, you know, it was basically a story about a pitcher and a catcher, and the catcher's terminally ill and how the team deals with it. Really good film. Uh, Sean's and Sandy. Sean, welcome to the program. 
Hey, John, sorry I hit the wrong button last time. You know, I hear these movies with these motivational speeches and stuff, and that's great for some kids, but, to, you know, that don't really motivate full-grown adults. You know, and I always say tough isn't how you act, it's how you train. And I like uh, talking about, you know, breaking up the room with a couple jokes and having some comedy, and, and I like motorsports. Now, I think Cannonball Run is, is one of the best <laughs> sports movies of all time. I love Cannonball Run. Burt Reynolds, when man. Got, when you got Burton Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, that's yeah, great. That, that's, a, that's good fun, brother. Yeah. You guys have a great day. Yeah, I appreciate it as well. I, I disagree with the pep talk, though. And, and I think you can get corny with a pep talk, and I, and I often will talk with coaches who go, you know, I don't do pep talks, but there's somebody on your staff who usually does the pep talk if you don't do the pep talk. And I'm just talking about it doesn't have to be all the time. It doesn't have to be win one for the Gipper, Newt Rockney style. But, you know, it's, you know, like Herb Brooks' miracle. Like, you know, there's a speech in there that's just phenomenal. That it, it becomes part of the history of sport. And, and those aren't kids. Those are grown, those are college-age kids, sure. But they're, in a lot of cases, you know, in NFL locker rooms, in college locker rooms, you're getting guys that are above 18 years old who are hearing these speeches. If we played them 10 times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. This is your time, Peter Sampson. It's your time. The Pulse is coming up. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.